Oh, you're, yeah, we're feeling it. Um, welcome. I feel it in the gut. It is. It's heart, it's heart wrenching. It it's Wednesday night, generational change. I'm Jen. I'm Peter and we're not in a good we're way. We're not, we're not in a good way. Um, but I think there's reasons for that. There's reasons for that. There's a lot Justifiable of reasons. Justifiable reasons. There's reasons. And, um, Valid just, reasons. and just like Nina said, that she is committing to basically going all over the country to promote, and regardless of the, you know, of speculation of running for president, she really is committed to going all over the country to speak up against the establishment and the filthy co corporate politicians. And, and so that I believe she's very committed to, which yeah. is awesome. And we came out of that sort of with a renewed idea of going around and trying to teach people how this is being played on them over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and so get this idea out because this isn't working. Now, I mean, again, <laughs> Nina's a different, uh, Nina's a completely different animal because she really is the leader and they had to make sure that she didn't get in uh, obviously, uh, you know, there was a lot of money that was thrown in, in uh, Chantel's coffers in the last two weeks, but very important to remember, um, and I didn't realize how fast and furious it is. Guys, most of these elections really are decided in like the last few weeks. So when we ran for Congress, you know, I, I basically had to wear every single hat and I had to figure out a way for us to have enough money set aside that we could get a TV. At least one. Yeah. And the, the, the TV end we did was a 30 second spot. It was really good. Kyle Kalinske, you know, put it on his show on Secular Talk the week of the election. Uh, it had enough of an impact where there were people at the polls who were saying, I saw you out on TV. I thought it was really nice. <laughs> and that does matter. Well, it does. And especially with older demographic. The older demographic still watches mainstream media. Yeah. And 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 her demographic in Cleveland, although it's older and black, it's still older. Like we were coming across people canvassing over a hundred. Like older population here it's an older um not necessarily black population but still older and the old people watch the tv they do and they do. it and and it is important and they are very old school so if, if you have zero tv presence other than the negative ads from the other side it affects it and the etiquette issue with the comment it bothered people and Chantel's campaign ran the ads non-stop. 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 Yeah. So, look, it's a variety of factors. You've got to watch the court. It's a variety of factors. Um, I think that definitely, you know, you could do a post game on the campaign and talk about things that went wrong. Um, but ultimately, it's just it, she's a lightning rod and they don't want her. No. And, and they're going to do everything. Because she can build the movement. If she's in a position of power, which again, there's there's there were problems campaign wise. I think there's a lot of different factors. Yeah. You know, it's not one thing. No, we're definitely going to dissect it. But what we must do is not give up the fight. And that is very easy to do under these circumstances. Yeah, it's We've hard. been through the ringer enough times where we know that this is just kind of to be expected now. And again, uh, and we'll obviously get into the whole thing with uh, what has happened uh, regarding Roe v. Wade, uh, the fact that the Democrats are proving once again that it really doesn't matter who's in power, unless, of course, the candidate is good and is actually fighting on the cause. I, I, I just, God, the Democrats love 
this Roe v. Wade stuff. They love it. According to uh, according to my sources, the Democrats, in conjunction with all of their affiliates, put out eight fundraising emails the other day. Boy. Nothing now, beats preying on fear. Not that it isn't warranted. It is warranted fear. However, it really does give Democrats, like people like our representative, an opportunity to, to grandstand. like to grandstand and yeah. go out there and stuff. And it, as if they're really putting it out there on the line. Uh, hello, when you're touting a majority opinion, you're not putting anything on the line. Had many <laughs> like, opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade, which was never done multiple decades. Biden can do it. There. They could do it now. They they choose not to. And when the president says, I'm not doing it, it's like, okay, well, then the buck stops there. Right. That's pretty much it. But they'll blame Joe Manchin. Well, it's all about Joe Manchin. The bottom line is we have a lot of great candidates that are running non-corporate races. Yes. And of course, in the state of Georgia, as we know, that is a huge state it's of consequence. wrong that every time I hear that, I hear um, Ray Charles. Is that well, wrong? of course. Okay. No, I'm just saying. Like, that's I, hear the, what I, I just hear the head. Diet Pepsi jingle. Uh-huh. That's um, embarrassing. But that's you. well that's that's, embarrassing that's me showing my age, so it is what it is. Whatever. But of course, as you guys know, uh Stacey Abrams is running for governor, uh Senator Warnock is running for re-election, and of course, Secretary of State position is the position that oversees the electoral process. If you all remember, that was part of their Pretty, problem last yeah. time. And considering that the candidate who is now running in the GOP primary, who is a former senator, uh David Perdue is uh-huh. now trying to become the governor of the state of Georgia. What's with the chicken farmers, man? We I have he's here related. Too. He's not related to Oh, it's a different Purdue? It's a different other Purdue. So I feel like I'm we're having a problem with the chicken farmer here. Yeah, it's well, unfortunately, Mr. Purdue, apparently in the first GOP <laughs> primary debate, said that uh, the election was totally rigged for Mr. Trump, and that is why we are here. So oh, we're really going to fix that problem. God, people. So we really need to emphasize the importance. Yeah, scat. We're not fans. We're not fans, but that doesn't undo the conflict of interest that was at stake during that election. Yes. Okay. So without further ado, we are very pleased to welcome back to the show a good friend and an even greater candidate, yes. Michael Owens, candidate for Secretary of State of Georgia. Welcome back to Generational Change. Oh, man. It's uh, it's great to be back. It's great to be here. Hey, Jen, how are you? Fred, you're so cute. I love seeing your face. Um, <laughs> Obviously, we're this is like a down day as far as like that was definitely a loss yesterday that we all kind of in the progressive movement felt. Um, And a big part of I do think people's discouraged, like people are very defeatist. And part of that is the electoral process has been so tainted (laughs) in this country. And and, and Georgia in particular wasn't looking very good. Um, And so would you talk talk a little bit about how important the secretary of state position is for people who do not. I mean. Yeah, we'll talk about that they do other stuff in elections. But right now, I think that overseeing elections is something people are really suspect about. Um, and, and rightfully so. I mean, let's, let's just be honest about it, right? I mean, in, in every aspect of elections, and, I, and you know, I'll specifically speak for Georgia right now, but, but there's been challenges, and there continue to be challenges, and for a multitude of different ways. But first and foremost is the... Is the really aspect around trust, right? And people having trust and faith in our elections. I mean, that is the cornerstone of democracy, right? Without without trust that, that either the system is going to work correctly or that your vote is going to count or that, you know, the electors to certify the elections are real electors um, or, you know, no matter how you slice it, the challenge that's going on right now is that people want to have someone, want to have people in office 
that they can feel comfortable uh, overseeing elections and they feel comfortable that um, no matter what those the outcome of the elections is, people can have trust and faith that their voices have been heard because that's that's what people are doing when they're going to the ballot at the end of the day. Right. They are casting their ballot to have their voices heard. And, and if there is any type of concern about the outcome of that, or whether that basic thing is being upheld, then there's going to be problems. And, you know, so when, when it all boils down, you, you strip away the D, the R, the, the you know, if it's libertarian, it doesn't matter. Right. At the end of the day, it has to be about elections that people can have faith and trust in. And, and in Georgia, that has been eroded and eroded for many reasons. Right. I mean, obviously, you guys kind of alluded to it beforehand uh, you know, when someone such as our current governor now was secretary of state. Um, but, but it's not just the fact that he was overseeing his own elections, right? I mean, let's dig deeper into that because some of the real concerns were the hundreds of thousands of people that have been purged from Georgia's voting records, yeah. right, on voting polls. Georgia's one of, I think, nine states in the country that has a basically has a use it or lose it proposition when it comes to voting. Now, you guys know me. I mean, I'm always going to encourage people to go to the polls, to go vote. You know, we, we say over and over again, you know, man, how do people not know when Election Day is? We've all knocked on tons and tons of doors reminding people when it is to vote. Um, but the aspect of hundreds of thousands of people being kicked off the voting rolls for no good reason or for a lack of true effort from the Secretary of State's office is obviously one of those areas, right? So it wasn't just the fact of overseeing his his own elections. And then things like exact match, right? These laws and these provisions, and these bills. And, and then, you know, from my perspective, I also go into the actual election process and the actual election systems, you know, um, making sure that voting machines are present where we actually need them, making sure there's enough machines where they need to be so people are not waiting hours and hours and hours. And then lastly, making sure that our data is actually safe, right? And that we're not having data leaks and data breaches of our own personal information or voter information uh, that either for nefarious reasons or just for incompetence is uh, is being kind of placed out into you know the dark web or wherever it may be. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people don't have trust and faith in the election system. How long does it take once someone is voted on election day or two days or three days until the actual results are counted and finalized. You know, I, I again, you guys know my background. For, for those that do not, um, you know, I'm a Marine Corps veteran. A third, I served eight years in the United States Marine Corps. And as of last year, I actually went back into a, a volunteer capacity as a, uh, a cyber auxiliary. So I work with the Marine Corps and the military now advising and consulting Marines on um, cyber security, cyber warfare, cyber tactics. And I bring it up to say is that you know, my, my background for the last 25 years has been in cybersecurity, specifically critical infrastructure systems, which election systems are. And I think people forget that, right? In most states throughout the country, the election systems are the largest piece of critical infrastructure that the state deploys. It's particularly on a reoccurring basis. And it's baffling to me that even now, not only the state of Georgia, not just for Democrats or Republicans, but the entire, every single person that's running for secretary of state, there's no one that actually has a background in cybersecurity or in critical infrastructure systems. And, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sorry to say that if, if we truly believe that elections is part of our critical or part of our cornerstone of our democracy and that it is part of our critical infrastructure, then why are we not electing people to office that actually has background and expertise in that? We all cried foul 
right when we had a, a head of EPA that did not believe in environmental protections. You know, we cried foul when you apply, you know, you, you appoint someone over, you know, the forestry who believes in clear cutting, you know, and, and cutting off top of mountaintops. But we don't think about the aspect of particularly we have a time and age such as now where we see what Russia's doing. You know, I, the company I work at right now where I head up uh, cybersecurity was hit by uh, the People's Army of China several years back. I mean, there are, there are real threats that are out there. And now we have domestic threats that are afoot, right? Not only, not only domestic from, from what we see on TV um, and what's covered in news, but also threats of, of insider, what, what I would call insider threat. Right. When you have someone like Steve Bannon talking about, you know, local election boards and how you have to take over. So when whatever we're doing doesn't turn out the way it needs to be, that there are people on the inside that can make sure justice is done. We are we are in a very, very scary point in time now. You know, and and my role in, in running is to, at the end of the day, ensure that we have fair, free, secure and effective elections. And that that's really what this is about. We're speaking with Michael Owens, candidate for secretary of state in Georgia. Obviously, early voting has begun. How are things looking at this point? Uh, obviously, leading up to Election Day, uh, obviously, you know, two uh, very well-known candidates at the top of the ticket uh, could be very beneficial. Um, it seems that the Democratic Party, at least in Georgia, is much more united than the GOP is. Uh, there definitely is, uh, you know, somewhat of a civil war going on. But the GOP has proven time and again that when it comes to the general election, they will unite. So. What's sort of the uh, consensus right now, uh, especially regarding the uh, the primary, and then obviously as we move along towards the general? Sure. I mean, from the Republican side, if, if you guys have seen any of the debates that's gone on here in Georgia in the last week or so, it's a race to the bottom, right? It is it is Trumpism in, in full effect, and um, that is that is what kind of still dominates that side and what's going on. And look, I'll, I'll go for it. You know, go right ahead because I, I truly believe that the people of the state of Georgia wants people in office that, that have a clear intent on what they want to do to truly help the people and the businesses of this state. And as long as Trump continues to be, uh, you know, in play, as long as he continues to exert himself, um, I think it gives us a great chance. Look, let's, you know, you guys mentioned earlier, let's not forget um, the, you know, whether it's the Democrats or we just talk about the people as a whole, um, we did, you know, Georgia did turn out for Joe Biden in, in, in 2020. In 2021, we did elect, you know, the first African-American to the Senate. We did elect the first Jewish person to the United States Senate from the state of Georgia. So, um, you know, the wind is still out our backs, right? The people are still um, motivated here. They're still, you know, and then, of course, Stacey Abrams comes back onto the scene, right? Not like she ever left, really, but, you know, as a candidate. Um, so... Um, yeah, make no mistake about it. I mean, they, you know, they, I think that the pundit talk around this is that, yeah, Republicans will line up and they will do what they need to do. But they just lost three statewide elections in the state. And we have not given up a single ounce of, of energy. And, and obviously, with their infighting they're having, it only continues to give us, you know, more of a chance. Now, one thing that we will see from the Democratic side, um, unlike many years in the past, is, man, there's a lot of Democratic candidates that are running for office. Um, which is great. I mean, we, we've seen an uptick every single year, probably since around 2014, I would say. Um, but this idea that we can win statewide now uh, without, you know, without being a Republican is something that's very appealing to a lot of people. 
And um, it's something that, you know, quite a few candidates have had. So we do have a lot of really good people running at, uh, you know, for statewide office this year. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a little biased when it comes to Secretary of State's race, but we have a lot of really good candidates um, that that want to do good work. And I think they're in it for the right reasons. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that you when you were talking about, like security that I know from when with the electoral process is it's such a for profit commodified industry and those machines and the contracts for the voting machines uh that's a little concerning to me because what they claim is that because it's proprietary, we don't get access as voters, as our county does not get access to what the mechanisms to even evaluate, to test them. You're not given access to that because it's um, patented, you know, private information. Right. And so there's no way, like there's no accountability. I, I feel like the idea that there is a profit middle person in our election process, like that, that is again, one of those things that should not have a profit motive in it. And I think that there is one. And, and you know, Jen, this is, this is probably the defining reason as to why I'm running for secretary of state. Um, you know, is it, for, as far as my career goes, this has been my life work. You know, um, you know, last year I was named one of the top 100 cybersecurity professionals in the world. You know, um, kind of taking us full circle in 2018 when Russia had invaded Crimea, right? And they had were, were in Ukraine before. I was one of 16 cybersecurity professionals to actually go to Ukraine. I was in Kiev, right? We had a, a global cybersecurity summit to talk about that. We also had some closed door sessions with the Ukrainian government about what we could do to stop the Russian in, in incursion, right? And shutting down their electrical grids and, and interfering their their election systems and, and government websites. So I, I understand this work intently. I understand the challenges that come up when you talk about election machines. Um, but I also understand that as, as someone who's, who's done this work, that we really need to be looking at the end-to-end, -end, what I call the end-to-end -end ecosystem of voting and ensuring that we have safeguards and we have uh, the necessary controls built in from the time you register, right, all the way until the time that those reports are actually uh, reported, right, till the reports come out. And every step along the way, there should be controls um, in place, people, processes, and tools, and making sure we're doing those right things, And which is why it's important, you know, when I, when I talk about um, maybe some of the more nuanced aspect of this, which you did touch on, um, but again, I, I work in this world. It's not nearly as black and white as people like to make it out. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we can't vote on these machines because they're hackable. Okay. You you want to know the only machine in the world that's not hackable, the one that's not plugged up, the one that's turned off. Mm -hmm. The reality is every machine is hackable to some extent. The world that I live in is about managing and reducing risk to ensure that we're putting the safeguards in place necessary that we have to do, and and that is what we have to focus on. Right? It's not a it's not a um, a, a black and white issue. It's not a zero and one binary choice that we have. What we have to do is have people in places that understand how to adequately be able to safeguard what we're doing. And again, it's not just the machines, right? It's the policies that's in place. It's the tools that's in place. And, you know, and I, I will segue a bit for this too, because a lot of the policies that we have in place, um, and we, you know, we, we haven't used the terms voter suppression or, or, or subversion yet, um, but, but it's fair to, and I think it, it absolutely is, because in my world, it's not all from a Jim Crow 2.0, you know, um, perspective, even though, look, this is Georgia, we still have a lot of that going on. There is no doubt, right? Um, but I equated two things. Part of it is 
good old voter suppression. The other part of it is just incompetence, right? That, that we have not put the time and effort into whether it's whether it's research, whether it's security, whether it's updating the policies. Um, you know, uh, several years ago, we had um, the night on the eve of the elections, we had a poll book, um, several poll books that actually got stolen. If you guys aren't familiar with poll books are, they're a little tablet, look like iPads um, that carry all the voter information. Um, you know, so the policy was they, the election managers show up the night before, they, they get these, and so they can take them directly to precincts in the morning. Well, someone stopped by the grocery store on the way home. Lo and behold, they come out, they're all gone. Someone thought they got an early Christmas present, there was a bunch of tablets laying there. Now, obviously, the person that stole these did not know what they got, right, and probably found the first trash bin that they could find once once it happened. But uh, but the, the point about it is, is that we have to modernize the entire system. And, it, and, and too much of the focus gets put just on the machines. Um, I'll give you another example of how we can use this to expand access to the ballot and, and to make it easier for more people to vote. There is absolutely no reason anymore why people should not be able to go to any election or polling place in the state and be able to vote. Right. This idea that you have to go somewhere within your county or even to your exact precinct right, um, right. It is no longer the it should no longer be the case. Every right. single voter has a unique ID number. Right. And all the systems are connected in a way that you should yeah. be able to determine, you know, and anyone's talking to you and complaining about old oh, ballot stuff. And we can't use drop boxes because, you know, people are going in and voting 15 times. And I'm like, no, you know, there's controls in place. There. So some of this fear mongering you're talking about earlier you know, is really a lack of understanding. And I look, I just, I just did an interview yesterday with someone that was talking about the same thing, right? About ballot stuffing, and he doesn't want um, drop boxes in in public places, and it has to be inside of election office so they can have a watch on them, so people can't go in and put a fifty or a hundred different ballots in there, right? The fact of the matter is, no, that's you know, every single voter has a unique voter ID number. Your vote is your person, and your vote's going to count once, and so. Part of the challenge with me is that being able to adequately explain why we need to better our election security, why it's important, but also how we can use technological advances to make it better without falling into the big lie, right? Because early on when I started running, there were Republicans that were going, oh, take a look there, right? There's a cybersecurity expert saying that there's problems with our elections. And so, you know, basically trying to use me to kind of justify part of this big lie. I'm like, absolutely not. You know, um, a, a phrase that I, I say a lot of times is that making it harder to vote does not increase election security. It just doesn't. Right. But right. we see that with, you know, in Texas and Arizona and all these other bills that came up, making it harder and harder for places to vote, especially right here in Georgia, where, you know, we're the epicenter of voter suppression. Right. They start these bills here. Um, you know, so my goal is, you know, cut the snake off at the head. Let's stop it right here in Georgia. I want to put in people, processes, and tools that's going to uh, empower local boards of elections. We have 159 counties here. They need leadership from the top, right? Stop kicking the can down the road and blaming people that are underfunded and, and untrained to do the work, putting in new systems without adequate you know, training. In, in Georgia, we just released a brand new system. And guess what? It's no surprise on day one, there's all kinds of issues with it, right? People aren't able to vote. People are, are, are being issued half of a ballot, right? Like on everything that you are having, supposed to vote for is not even on the ballot. Why? Because the Secretary of State's office did not update the databases like they should have. I'm sorry. You have 364 days to get this right. You know, stop. That's just There's That's no excuses for this. No. We continue to see this. And who is it robbing? It's robbing the American people. 
It's robbing the Georgia voters um, that deserve better. They deserve to have the voices heard. And, and you know, I'll, I'll lastly say, you know, it's inexcusable to have people standing in line for four, five, six, seven, eight hours. That's absolutely inexcusable, you know. Um, and, and, you know, a precinct right here where I live, um, my, my mother's precinct, as a matter of fact, eight hours was the wait. And, and for election day at that polling location, you know, there's another place about 20 miles from here where, you know, and in Georgia, it's the same where I was having, you know, get it, get in line by seven and, and stay in the, the, the line. Do not let anyone get you out of the line. Stay in the line. Well, there were people who literally did not vote until the day after election because it was after midnight by the time they got an opportunity to cast their vote. That is absolutely unacceptable. Um, there's no reason that should happen. No, and and you guys know like I do. You know, we, we can we can talk about what you know the definition around voter suppression. But I can tell you, when someone pulls up to a polling location and that line is wrapped around the building, that's voter suppression right there. Because there are a certain number of people. We can't say how many, but there's a certain number of people. They're just going to keep on going, right? There's people that get off work. You know, they're like, hey, maybe I'll go vote. You know during lunch hour and they show up, you know, 500 people in line. I'm sorry. They're not, they're not going to vote. Yeah. Well, it's done, it's done on purpose. And, um, I was, I'm curious, did any of those voters that were purged, because I remember that, like it was outrageous. Um, to me, that almost seems like a good class action suit against the state because I would think that's a violation of their liberties. Like that's so, a big deal. You know, Jen, the, the way things are done, it is it is systematic, it's institutional. So when we yeah. start talking about voter suppression, when we start talking about the ability to make it harder for people to vote, um, we aren't always talking about laws and bills, right? Even though the, the Senate Bill 202, which was passed here, that just further, you know, uh, limited access to the ballot, particularly for black and brown communities, which is, you know, under suit now from the DOJ. But there are so many aspects of this that, that aren't, you know, codified per se. Or I'll give you another example. Um, the Secretary of State's office hired a consultant. And and in my purview, from, from all the reading and understanding I did, he hired a consultant to go out and ensure that polling locations were up to ADA compliance. Sounds great, of course. American Disabilities Act, we want to make sure that, that disabled people in the state is able to vote just like everyone else. We want to make sure those polling locations are accommodating them. However, when we look at the results of what that was, you know, the vast overwhelming majority of those polling locations that were cited and closed down were in black communities, right? So, oh, you know, I'm sure that was a coincidence. You know, it's a coincidence, right? So again, like how you can take, you know, a provision that, that is supposed to be for the good of, of Georgia voters and you turn that into a targeted nefarious act to go out and, and make it harder for people in certain demographics to be able to vote. And, and so those are the type of things that I'm talking about, you know, so, but, but for me, I'm looking at going forward, you know, I'm looking at things that I can do to make a difference. You guys know I'm, I'm an engineer by trade. I, I love to solve problems. So every, every item that comes up, I'm going, how can I fix this? What can I do? Um, you know, so one of the things that was talked about with that same Senate bill, SB 202, was that it made it illegal to give people food or water when standing in line. We all know, we all heard about it from across the country. Yeah. Like, how absurd is this, right? I mean, again, we're talking about four, five, six hour lines and, you know, you're not giving people an opportunity. So first thing is we need to follow law that already exists that says 
know, each polling location should only have 2,000 people, right? Um, and, and that's not the case that gets overloaded. There's also the provision that should allow, um, you know, elderly, disabled people to go straight to the front of the line. I, I, I know why I pull up the polling locations and I see people in wheelchairs and walkers that are standing in line. That's absolutely wrong. Um, but then the, the last thing is don't give people food or water. Look, I, you know, I've been someone that's coordinated food trucks. I've showed up with pizza. You know, I've handed out bottles of Gatorade in lines. Um, but but my approach as Secretary of State is not necessarily going to go go to become the Secretary of State to go argue about bills that, are, that the governor has already signed. Right. Hopefully. And it's my intent that we'll have Stacey Abrams as governor so we can start to you know rewind some of those bad bills. But I'm not going to, you know, the, the Secretary of State's office, and I always make this distinction with people, is not a legislative role, right? It's not about voting for this or that. It's not about how are you going to fight. You know, we need someone that's going to be Secretary of State that's going to come in with a strategy, and able to build a team, set out some milestones and goals, and, and hit the ground running. So, you know, instead of going down and arguing about, you know, a bill that's going to criminalize people to give food or water while they're standing in line, my goal is I'm going to make the line shorter. I'm going to make well, some people standing in lines. Right. right? That's, I mean, like, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't have a law about giving people beverages. They shouldn't need a drink because they should get there, vote and go home. Like, that's the point. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, that, that that's the simple thing. Or, you know, we could there's a multitude of solutions you can come up with. Right. The, but the problem is that you're literally going to make this part of the law because, you know, the lines are so long. Right. That you're going to make it, you know, you're, you're going to make it harder on people, you know, <laughs> to stand in line. So they won't. So they won't vote. I mean, the whole thing is, is, is kind of mind blowing when you really think about it. And, and I explain to people, I says, look, you know, our tax dollars, literally our tax dollars is being spent on finding ways to make it harder for us to vote. Yeah, that is that is actually what's happening. You know, to, you know, you know, like my grandmother used to tell me, it's like, you know, show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities, you know, and, and yeah. the, the priorities of the secretary of state has been made clear. You know, in April of 2020, long before a single vote was ever cast, our current secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, started a voter fraud task force, a voter fraud task force. Right. And, and that's so frustrating because. You know, he's also known. I think we can we can say that um, a lot of people talk about our current secretary like, oh, he's a great guy. He did the right thing. You know, when Trump called him looking for his 11,000 votes, um, he did the right thing. You know, he stood up. He stood in the face of Trump and he would not relent. And and people ask me, well, Michael, what what would you do? Right. And I said, you know what? I would do exactly the same thing he did. Right. He did the right thing. Now, I'm a Marine, so I probably would have used some choice words about where he could have gone and what he could have done when he asked me that. But the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is I, I would have done the same exact thing. But I also say this, I, I will give our current secretary nor Kate nor Cookie for doing his job. Right. right? I'm, I'm not going to talk about how great he is simply for not committing a felony. Um, you know, the, the aspect of, of, of doing your job is, is, I'm sorry, if the bar is that low, please, we need a reset, right? This is a further reason as to why we absolutely have to have someone else as Secretary of State. If, if you can applaud someone for, for openly and brazenly not cheating in elections, man, that you know, bar is pretty low. But I tell people, you want to test the, the true test of character, you go back to April of 2020 when that 
voter fraud task force was created. Because what that did, Jim, what that did was that planted the seed of doubt, right? That planted the seed that there would be voter fraud in this in that upcoming election, the 2020 election. Um, and so by doing that, by spending our tax dollars, by promoting this task force, by going, there's going to be a lot of fraud, we're getting ready. You know, that led to the whole Stop the Steal movement, right? That led to further bills in Louisiana and Texas and Arizona, you know, that all came from that, that, um, that voter fraud task force that was started up. And I will go so far as say, to say the January 6th insurrection, the January 6th insurrection, the most bloodiest, deadliest uh, event that we've had on our nation's capital since 1812 was because of our Secretary of State starting a voter fraud task force. The, the, the mere place, the last place you would look for for disinformation or misinformation is literally being spewed right from our Secretary of State's office. So I lay that squarely at his feet. You know, the, the, the maligned activities that we've seen, that we saw play out in Arizona and elsewhere, um, started right here. So when anyone starts to say, oh, yeah, look, and, I, and this is not an attack on anyone's character. These, these are facts that we're talking about. Right. That, you know, this person who holds this very critical role started a task force to say, look out, here comes all the voter fraud. And there was none. And there never was any widespread voter fraud. And it, and it yeah. across this country that we're all still dealing with now. And it's made it harder for millions of people, not only in Georgia, but millions of people across this country to be able to have their voices heard in the ballot box because of that one incident that was done. I'm running for secretary of state because I absolutely want to reverse that. Instead of being an architect of making it harder for people to vote, I want to be at the vanguard, at the forefront of making sure that every single eligible voter in the state is able to vote, that we're doing everything we can. If I got to get on and give PSAs every single week, I'm going to be letting people know when election day is, how they can actually go out and vote right now on the secretary of state's website. If you try to request an absentee ballot, I'm sorry, if you try to request an absentee ballot, via the online portal, it is down. And it says, sorry, we've got maintenance going on so we can have it ready for a future election. But what future election are we going to wait for? We don't have future elections to wait for. We need it now. Now, you know, there's supposedly, there's, you know, there's other ways that you can, you know, request an absentee ballot. Um, Part of the reason, I think, is because of that SB202 bill we were talking about earlier. I think they're just shutting down the online portal. So again, making it harder. So if you want an FC ballot now, you have to print it out. You have to fax it in. Well, my printer's broken and I haven't had a fax in about 15 years, you know, <laughs> or you can print it out and go down to the local precinct. Again, why are we not using an online ballot? I mean, why are we not using an online request form for that? As a matter of fact, I think we should be able to request a ballot um, and send that request, ballot request in via that online portal. Um, but again, it's just another example, right? We start early voting this week. I get in people contacting me going, hey, Michael, I don't know what's going on, but I can't request a ballot. Or I'm going to the Secretary of State's website and I'm trying to download a sample ballot and I'm getting a blank page or I'm, I'm getting an error. Again, yeah. these are things that are absolutely unex- unacceptable um, and we can't allow it. We cannot allow it to go on anymore. To say the least, you are a fantastic candidate and you really know this stuff. And the problem in politics that we see all too often is that people just want to pay attention to the sexy stuff, the highlights, the the tweets, all those things. 
um, we do not have a functioning democracy right now because corporate special interests have completely captured our government. They have truly done that in the state of Georgia. And obviously, anytime these changes that are on the cusp of happening from somebody who is non-corporate like yourself, they will fight tooth and nail to stop it. They will claim voter fraud when there isn't any. And they will continue to perpetuate this corrupt system until we put our foot down and say, no, this is it. We're not taking it anymore. So guys, if you're out there, owensforgeorgia.com, the secretary of state position is immensely important. I know we focus on governor, senator, and Congress, but these are the positions yeah. that allow us to make the necessary wholesale changes that need to be made. You want healthcare, you want environmental uh, you know, policy that's gonna be enacted at the state level, you want to have a living wage, you want to get off of fossil fuels. There's a lot of things that can be done if people are able to get to the polls instead of being told not only that they can't, but put through the ringer literally over and over again. And now laws in place where you can't drink or eat while you're online for six to eight hours. But there is no such thing as, as, uh, as voter suppression. You just haven't voted hard enough. That's the problem. Michael Owens, we love you. We appreciate you coming on and we will definitely have you back again. Of course, all the best of luck. Let everybody know when election day is. And if anybody wants to get involved again, owensforgeorgia.com. Thank you so much for coming on. What is the date for that election? The election date is May 24th. However, as you said, early voting started this week. So ah. we literally have people voting now through the 24th. Get in line, stay in line, make sure you vote for Michael Owens for Georgia. Um, I, I'll be remiss if I did not make a plea. We are still raising funds for this. As you said earlier, right? I mean, we have Stacey Abrams that we absolutely need to put in office. We need to reelect Reverend Warnock um, and, and, you know, those flows are, are, are those funds are flowing, but we need to yeah. make sure for those down ballot races, those races that may not be as sexy, let's make sure we, we you know, hit that donate button for those candidates as well. Owensforgeorgia.com. You can you can find my donate button there. And if you know you like what we had to hear say today, uh, if you want to be part of protecting voting rights, if you want to defend democracy. There is a place you can do it. You can join the Owens for Georgia campaign where we're doing that right now. We are giving people hope. We are inspiring people. We're making sure their vote and their voices are heard. Join us today. you got until May 24th to help us out where we can do what we need to do to make Georgia a better place for everyone that lives here. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Hope to see you soon. And Georgia is definitely on our mind. Have yes. a great evening. You have to say that, huh? <laughs> Thanks, buddy. But you know what? It's funny. It's like, and also, people, if you're going to get in line in Georgia, make sure you're hydrated. Yes, that's true. Well, of course, uh, you know, Georgia does get a little hot at this time of year, starting to anyway. So uh, after, obviously, being in Cleveland, it wasn't as, uh, it was pretty brisk, which I actually like. But, of course, now we are going to transition to another part of the country, one that Jen is very familiar with. It happens to yeah. be Colorado. And what's going on in Colorado? We're going to get an update. We're going to get an update now, but I know that our friend Neil has like, they have, what's their, what's their process called? We're going to find out all about it, but he has made it. He's through, on the he, yes. He has made it through the first step of the gauntlet of whatever the nonsensical gauntlet they have. Well, don't worry. The corporate Dems and the GOP will find every reason as they did to Neil Turner to try to screw Neil too. So we're here to make sure that he doesn't have too hard of a, a road ahead of him. And we all must stick together and keep building. Yeah. This I mean, well, hopefully they don't know of him enough to hate him as much as they hate me enough. And as far as I know, well, they might not. And as far as I know, he isn't hated specifically by Hillary Clinton. So that keeps him fairly safe. 
I wouldn't talk so quickly. <laughs> Neil Walia, welcome back to Generation. Yo, Change. good to see y'all again. How's everyone doing? Well, I guess well. question, probably not as good as we could be, but uh, I'm glad to be here with y'all. It's good to see you guys. Right. So, since you were here, um, yeah. is that, do you guys have jungle primary? Is that it? And so the top two go on? Like, what is it that now? Because I know you've made it through step one. Yeah, yeah, we made it. We're on the ballot. I'm one on one with my opponent without a viable GOP opponent. And so when we take the primary, we're in Congress. And so uh, a lot has happened since we've last uh, touched base. So I'm gonna try to think about, I think we, we talked in uh, October of last year. Okay, so, okay, yeah. yeah. It's been a while. And yeah. uh, I'm proud yeah. to see that a lot has happened uh, since then. Uh, we kind of mm -hmm. curved into the new year and the fruits of our labor really started to pay off. Uh, we started getting a number of national endorsements. Uh, Marianne Williamson, number one, uh, to endorse us. And that was followed by some other larger organizations like Blue America and the Progressive Democrats of America, which was nice. And then we started getting a number of local uh, and state endorsements. And the momentum really kept building. And so going into your question, you can qualify for the ballot here in Colorado in a few different ways. First and foremost is through the caucus process, which is the traditional path that a lot of, uh, a lot of Democrats, I'll say, ch traditionally take. And my team and I made an intentional choice to not take that path. We decided to qualify exclusively uh, through collecting signatures, which is the other option that you can take. <laughs> uh, you can also do a hybrid approach, but you know, my team and I, since the offset, we're trying to run a campaign that was dictated, determined, and elevated through people. And for me, I always kind of knew that I wanted the hands, or I should say the fate of my campaign to be in the hands of people. And the caucus here is a great process. It's definitely, you know, grassroots democratic. But for me, I've always viewed the caucus as something that people who are very deeply connected to the political process to participate in, right? It's a number of delegates who are in the party. They dictate who makes it onto the ballot and who doesn't. And for me, I said, you know what, let's try to take a, an approach that empowers people who have never really participated in this type of election. And so we hit a number of neighborhoods uh, to collect signatures that people were telling me don't go to when I started this race. And these are neighborhoods that are, you know, BIPOC neighborhoods, uh, working class, middle class. And the number one thing I heard over and over again was, you know what, these people don't vote. Uh, so don't go there. They're not going to help you out. And I couldn't help but wonder, you know, like, has anyone ever knocked on their door before? You know, has someone who... Uh, who has made an intention to kind of treat this multilingually, multiculturally, uh, gone literally to their block in their neighborhood to make a case for themselves? Uh, and the answer is no, because time and again, every door we knocked, everyone had said, wow, I've never had anyone knock on my door before. I've never met a person running for Congress. I've never even seen my congressperson. And, you know, I'll tell you this, it was hard. Uh, like the signature collection route, no joke. Uh, we collected almost 3,000 signatures. I needed 1,500 to qualify. But as y'all can imagine, uh, we talked to like 20 to 30,000 people to just get those like 3,000 signatures in and of themselves. And so, yeah, we, uh, we got 2,900, about 1,800 of those ended up counting. Uh, and, you know, I'm now on the ballot. And so it was, it was good. Like, and it really spread visibility about the campaign uh, just by going door to door and neighborhood to neighborhood. And you know, we sit in a very interesting position right now. So I appreciate the question. Well, yeah. we definitely have a much more difficult process to getting on the ballot. Oh, yeah. Before, we, so 
Uh, it can only be done within the district lines. You can only get signatures from people within your district. And, and me too. Oh, yeah, that's also true. We need a lot. Yeah, we, we needed like over 4,000. No, I thought it was like 7,000. No, we wanted to get Whoa. that. Like, oh, yeah, no, you need like, it was like 4,600, like it was a certain whatever that was. Um, and then the cost, if you don't get it, is $10,400. Florida is the second highest um, buy-in on the ballot. Ironically, a, a state that's not too far from you, Arkansas is actually the number most expensive. That's number one. So they, 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 they make you... They pay, make you pay money if you don't make it onto the ballot? Well, you can do it by petition okay. or you can do it by paying. And I already told him, like, if we're ever to do this again, I'm just going to allocate the money for it because, yeah. quite honestly, it's like I can canvas and talk to 20 different people in the amount of time that it takes to get two people to fill out one of those forms. So it isn't that it isn't that I don't you don't want to go canvas, like definitely need to canvas. Yeah, yeah. But that slows it down and makes it so complicated and it has to be done exactly correctly. And I'm sure, you know, like it's such a pain in the 2,900 signatures and 1,100 of them got thrown out. Exactly. Yeah. And for yeah. the most like bizarre of reasons, too, you know, like if. They're just, you know, if they put the wrong apartment number for whatever reason, or, you know, if they forget that they moved, right? Like in Denver, what we ran into was that so many people have migrated to becoming unaffiliated, right? From the right and the left. Yeah. Our district is D plus 57, you know? So the vast majority of people you talk to are Democrats, but wow. there's so many people who like literally forgot that they had gone from Democrat to unaffiliated. And so- so many of our signatures were from people who were like, yeah, I'm a Democrat. I vote for blue every time. And then, you know, we'd check them on the back end. And I was like, oh, man, like y'all went unaffiliated in the last few years. You, you have to have it by the same party. Oh, yeah. Oh, same party. You don't have to have the same party. So one of the things we did, because we went to the Trump rally when he was here. Mm. And because if there's one thing that our Republicans do all together is hate Debbie Wasserman Schultz. So we went to the Trump rally and collected a boatload. God, like, wow. That would have made my life incredibly easy if that was the you case. Have to go to party. That it, sucks. It was it was a lot, you know. And so I'm happy that it worked out. Uh, it was definitely, I think, the most stressful part of the campaign thus far, just because, you know, like we submit our signatures, right? And you know, we treated yeah. it 50% success rate. Like go <laughs> as safe as you can. And what was really tough was that they made us wait for like almost a month before I got verification. I know, I know. And so I'm like campaigning, raising all these dollars, selling people, it's all good. But like in the back of my head, I'm like, oh my God, there's this doomsday scenario where this all doesn't work out for me and this is gonna be really embarrassing. But you know, we, we, we dodged that, but it was definitely one of those moments that made me realize like, I just, I don't know how other candidates do that because I woke up every day feeling like anxious, panic. Oh, it was the worst and every night, like I yeah. would wake up in the middle of the night, like thinking about signatures, you know, like that was like what it was like for a while. You know? so, yeah, it's 24 seven. And I do, I will admit that there is a certain safety factor knowing that you can buy on if you have to. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, like granted, it's exorbitant and disgusting and it shouldn't be, but, but there is a safety factor in that. So I, I appreciate that. But uh, you know, when you're canvassing, like you were saying, a lot of the people, they have never seen anybody come and canvas. And I'll, and I'll even give you one, one up because we would canvas and ask people how we could help them. 
I love that. We would canvas and ask people like, is there anything we can help you with? Like what's going on? What, not just what are your issues in general, but like we would even get like specific things and do everything we can to help people. But when you knock on someone's door and say, hi, I'd like to represent you. What can I do for you? People look at you like that. No one's ever seen that. How pathetic is that? Right. It, it's actually astonishing, right? Because it kind of made me realize just how purchase politics is, right? Like, again, I'm going up against a 25-year sitting incumbent. And for me to hear that there are people who have been living in Denver for like multiple generations who have said they've never met her or seen her in any single like day of their lives, I'm like asking myself, how is this even possible, you know? And then, you know, now, of course, like having campaigned, I realize just how valuable like the money game is, you know, and like we've raised a decent amount, but like compared to the corporate multimillionaire budget that so many of these people have, it's like, I, I've kind of learned just like everyone is advised to buy their way to the finish line, right? To your point, oh, buy your signatures. Oh, yeah. buy uh, the robocalls so that like, even if you're not meeting uh, them ever, like they feel like they're getting a phone call from you, buy the digital ads, the TV ads. And like, it's just um, people will do anything but talk to like actual people to get their trust and support, you know? And thankfully that has created a very big cultural difference between me and my opponent because, you know, like we're not necessarily splashing like the big dollars on all these things, but like what they don't recognize is like, we're literally in every neighborhood every day now. And so like, we're seeing people express genuine excitement uh, and also, you know, like a bit of frustration at the status quo, which, you know, I'm not happy to say that benefits me. I always want us to have good representation, but I can't deny that it's it's boosted us in a way that I wasn't anticipating. So, um, yeah, I've, I've loved the doors. Uh, I think a lot of times people kind of, you know, when you're talking about this in mar like marketing kind of standpoint and stuff, it's like the idea is you need to touch a voter like five, six, seven times, right, before you get to the finish line. And for me, I've kind of always thought of like my own personal experiences as like a voter. And I'm like, have I ever got like a Facebook ad in the last couple of years that has made me think, oh, wow, all of a sudden, like, I'm going to vote for this person. Or like, have I seen a tweet that really like inspires me to change, you know, the way I vote or think about things? And the answer is, is firmly no. You know, yeah. and what I do get inspired by, though, is like this kind of connection. Like if I'm talking to somebody, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. And, you know, we've always treated the door knock as the most important experience any voter can go through. And that's kind of the model we're committed to. Uh, between now yeah. and the end of June. Yeah. yeah, I think when you touch people in person that you actually reduce the amount of contacts they need because they almost never get a live person. Yeah. Like I, and I and I also know that people are often left with the last person that they spoke with and what that made them feel like. Forget the really? positive. You yeah. know it, when you approach people and you connect with them and they just like you, then the policy stuff actually doesn't matter as much and they and they yep. feel like there's somebody that's caring about them that will listen to them and right. then it doesn't matter if you agree on everything and i just think that this mentality is so much would be so much more effective for people campaigning yeah and yeah. i think like you've, you've hit a, a great point and that, that's been my learning curve honestly throughout the campaign because i very much love policy Right. Like uh, in the same way, the gentleman before us, uh, I was talking, I'm an engineer. I love solutions. Right. The way I always think about politics is like, OK, like what are the things that can take us uh, to a more equitable healthcare system? Right. What are the things that can take us to a greener environment and economy? And those are very distinct policy ideas. But to your point, Jen, like 
people don't care about that, right? Like people don't vote with this, they vote with their hearts. And so what I learned very quickly is that people weren't, I, I think obviously in my district, people do resonate with the policy, but more effectively, when I told the story of who I am, what I've been through, kind of what my communities are going through, like that's when people see themselves in you, right? They see a part of them and what you're representing. And like, that matters way more, uh, I think, than, yeah, I care about this idea versus that idea necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know for a fact that's what it is. Yeah, and I think this, uh, it's obviously, as you mentioned, policy is a huge uh, part of this equation. And of course, uh, if there is one specific policy that both Democrats and uh, Republicans fail on miserably is affordable housing. Um, it goes without saying that your particular district, uh, Denver is one of the, I think, five or six most expensive places in the country to live now. Uh, gentrification is completely off the chart. Of course, one of the biggest issues in Denver is um, obviously you've had a lot of people relocate from Silicon Valley. It has become one of those places. Where, I'm sorry. Yeah, big town. Oh, listen, you've got the big tech industries that have hit Denver and Austin, but they are coming here to Miami. So if, they, if you think it's hard enough to live here in South Florida, you ain't seen nothing yet. So it's going to get even worse. But with that said, what has been sort of the trajectory as you've seen? Because looking at the lovely congresswoman's bio, uh, she does not have anything outside of the purview of the typical wedge issues that are focused on regarding the Democratic Party. Like ours. Pro-choice, uh, LGBTQ. We're nice to the trans folk. Yeah. And yeah. we support women's rights to choose. You're otherwise screwed, but we're good on those things. I don't see anything regarding Medicare for all. I don't see anything regarding right. the living wage. I don't see anything regarding housing crisis. I don't see anything regarding the wars. Uh, I don't see anything regarding cost of living. Uh, Colorado is a very unique state in the sense that it is not an expensive state to live in if you're nowhere near the big cities. But right. yeah. if you are near the big cities, you again, you might as well be in Los Angeles or San Francisco. There really is no difference at this point. And I can imagine that that is a significant role that is being played in your campaign is focusing on the fact that cost of living in the state of Colorado, particularly in Denver, is really bad. And yeah. your congresswoman definitely plays a role in that. If you could elaborate on that, we'd appreciate totally. it. I mean, you you nailed the most important thing that I think it's and this isn't a Denver issue necessarily. Right. Like people all over the United States are feeling the full weight of the American economy right now. And Denverites, uh, to your point, uh, are not uh, out of that equation. And so uh, I read an article, I think it was top seven, top five, but out of the biggest 50 uh, cities uh, population wise in the United States of America, we're the seventh most expensive uh, in terms of like what you need to be making in terms of a livable wage. Uh, to, to succeed and, and live out here. And there are a number of things that are contributing to that, right? You've, you've mentioned one of them, which is the fact that there are a lot of wealthy individuals who are looking at Colorado, who are looking at the environment out here as, wow, this is cool. I want to be out here. I love the state. I love the progress. But for me, I've always thought about poverty, economics. It's all about systems, right? And the systems that we have here in Colorado are incentivizing this type of behavior. So a couple of things for people to know about. Uh, Colorado, uh, in its constitution, uh, is not allowed to implement rent control. Okay, so rent control is off the table. That is forbidden by our state constitution. Another important thing for people to think about, and I think we might have touched on this a little bit the last time we talked, it's the tax framework we have called TABOR, uh, which essentially caps state 
tax revenue at a level that existed in the 90s. And the problem with that is our state has exploded uh, in terms of population size since that time. So, of course, ideally, you want your state revenue uh, to evolve with the population so that you can invest those public dollars, education, infrastructure, housing, and all those things. But we can't do that, right? So in the process, we've created a very predatory economy, uh, predatory real estate economy in particular, right here in the Mahai City. And so whether it's the cost of housing, whether it's the cost of healthcare, education, you know, people right now uh, are struggling. And we've seen our homeless population quite literally double uh, in the last year. And that's no, that's no secret. So when we're talking about kind of the difference of vision and, and, and the frameworks that I have compared to my opponent, you know, the first thing we lead with whenever we're talking to our, our voters, our communities is sharing the story, right, Jen? It's saying, look, we think it's important for our representation to live the struggles of their constituents. And unfortunately, like a lot of us right now, uh, I'm being crushed by a lifetime of student debt. Uh, I can't afford to buy a home in the city that I want to live in. And the cost of childcare uh, is something that is preventing our ability to begin our family, uh, meaning me and my wife. And so that's the first thing I try to lead with. But then when it comes to the policy side of the equation, I think you hit um, the frustration that so many of us have right now, which is in a district like ours, that is D plus 57, that is progressive, that wants to see transformational progressive policies be championed, uh, we don't have that. And I think that's due to the fact that my opponent has literally accepted millions and millions of dollars uh, from what I would describe as the wrong corporations over the course of her career. And, you know, for example, we lead with the Green New Deal, right? Environmental issues in Colorado are top of mind. We had the biggest fire in the history of our state in the winter of last year. Two of our neighborhoods in Denver, my district, uh, registered two of the most polluted zip codes in the United States. So uh, there is a great need for a full commitment to the environment. But, you know, my opponent hasn't signed a single piece of Green New Deal legislation. And I think that's due to the fact that XL Energy, which is one of the biggest oil and gas presences we have here in Colorado, I've given her $50,000 over the course of her career, right? Like that is by design. And then you look at the conversation of healthcare, right? This is also one of the biggest things and one of the most important things we need to be talking about, I think, in the context of Roe versus Wade, right? Like. First and foremost, uh, healthcare is a human right, period. Uh, and I don't care what the politics are behind that. Like, that is my belief. And unfortunately, my opponent's biggest financiers, uh, corporation wise, are pharmaceutical companies and healthcare lobbyists, right? So, by design, she cannot advocate for Medicare for all in the way that I think so many of us are looking for. And so, these patterns of behavior are very troubling. They're what we highlight in terms of like our differences over the campaign trail. And you know, I think Colorado is really, or I should say the first congressional district is ready to be a leading voice uh, in the transformational policies we all care about. Yeah, guys, his his incumbent has been sitting there since 1997. I was eight when she was elected into office, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, Denver, um, that because of how it sits geographically, just so people understand, it's always had an issue with the potential to have smog. That's just something that's inherent in how it's up against the mountains because I rem like I remember this was an issue and they went through phases where they were so good about it and it really did work and it really cleaned it up similar to what happened in LA. And But when you live in that kind of environment, you have to be on top of that because of the way that the, I mean, you should be on top of it anyway, but like you really have a tendency to get a smog and a brown cloud. Denver had a brown cloud. They were known for having Ooh. brown cloud. 
and it, oh, and it's disgusting. Yeah. yeah. And, and you need to be on top of that people. Like that's not, it, it's, it's not acceptable. And I think, and, like, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Nick. Well, I was just going to say at the end of the day, and I think this is where so many voters are at. Um, it's either, you know, you're fully committed to let's say the climate crisis or you're not. And if you're committed to the climate crisis, that means not only signing the policies that we're talking about, it also means a strong rejection uh, of corporate dollars from oil and gas, right? And we don't have any of that here uh, in terms of our representation right now. And it's it's really challenging. Uh, but I think also people feel that way right now about you know the main topic of the day, which is you know what is happening to abortion access in this country. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of Democrats, including my opponent. Who, by the way, uh, I want to say created the space for this conversation to happen, right? When my opponent, Congresswoman DeGette, was elected in 1998, she was one of the few women in Congress, one of the few women uh, who had, you know, a great legal background, but also a strong voice on reproductive rights and access to abortion and all of these topics that are in full uh, force right now. But here we are 25 years later, right? And right now, I think we would all agree that if you're a Democrat, uh, especially in Congress, whether you're in the Senate or the House, there are two things that you need to be talking about right now if we really care about getting Roe versus Wade codified into our laws. One, you got to end the filibuster. And if you're not behind that, uh, it's virtue signals for me. Or you need to be talking about expanding the Supreme Court, right? Like anything that allows us to take advantage of the majority we have that can actually prevent what is inevitably going to happen in the Supreme Court, like we need Democrats to lean into the moment now and put it all on the line for this issue, voting rights and all of these things that are going to be taken away from us. Right. Because I think we would agree it's going to start uh, with abortion, but it certainly will not end there. OK, like that's that's yeah. on the wall. But right now, my opponent is also out here saying that she doesn't believe we need to end the filibuster. And I'm like, what are we talking about? Really? Like, like this right. is this is insane to me because, you know, it's it's just. We're lucky as a state because we codified uh, reproductive rights into our state. Right. You're one of those states where it kicks in. Like if, if that happens, you're safe. Like your women are somewhat safe there. But what we do know, though, is that inevitably, like it's going to lead to a great migration of individuals all over this country who are coming to Colorado. For we were coming purposes. there anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's challenging, especially for you know, the ultimate victims of this decision, which is going to be like women of color, right? Indigenous women, working class women, people who don't have the means, um, you know, to, to, to access the services they need, right? Like the one thing I hear time and again from a lot of people is that wealthier people, they're going to be okay, right? They'll always have the services to fly out to wherever they yeah. need. But, you know, when you're talking about people who are now being forced to fly across the country for these services, or even in our state, right? Like, let's say Colorado Springs won't provide it. You know, you've got to bus two hours up to Denver to get the services you need. Like these create very real challenges uh, for all people when they need to access these services. And so, um, like, it's not enough to just say we're codifying it in Colorado. We have to do this as a country right now uh, and protect our communities because, like, we know what's going to happen if we don't. So, And can I, can I also segue the fact that while this battle is about to be, like, raging, the Speaker of our House and uh, the head of the Democratic Party in Congress, essentially, is right now currently campaigning for an anti-choice Democrat in San Antonio. And, and, and so tell me how that's fighting 
for my reproductive freedom. Like, and to me, like when you were talking about your incumbent, it's the same difference. It's like, you say you care about that. Really willing to walk the walk. You cannot be campaigning for a pro- first of all, pro life Democrat is like Jews for Jesus. Okay. That shouldn't be a thing. All right. <laughs> it's like an oxymoron. So the fact that she's down there promoting Quayar, while this it's very telling to me. It's insane, right? And I'm like, what like are we trying to lose the midterms right now? Like, is that is that what's on the table for us? Like, can we not it involves anything that will call into question corporate special interests in any way? Yes. Yeah. That's what I'm and and I think, oh, sorry, go ahead. I just, this topic like is so frustrating because it's that just, uh, it shouldn't be frustrating at all because to me, this is all very transparent, black and white. I don't react in any other way other than, I am very aware of how this game is played and everybody else should be aware too. Uh, Virtue signaling is very easy to do, but let's not forget our president is anti-choice. People need to stop saying pro-life. That's true. They need to stop saying pro-life because that's not what it is. Right, they don't care about what they're born. I'll tell you who's pro-life. The Pope Francis is pro-life because he does not believe in abortion, but he is not going to tell you what to do with your body. Absolutely is the big difference. Uh, no, me. only Republicans. It has nothing to do with religion. They, that's, it's, as, remember what John Fugel saying, we had him on and was saying, like they're, they're falsely religious. They're not, re- they're fake. He called them fake Christians. Um, and it was very interesting. Yeah, because the Bible doesn't say anything about not getting abortion. Yeah, it doesn't. And uh, sorry, sorry, buddy, we didn't mean to offend <laughs> you or anything like that. But <laughs> it, what, I think what's even crazier is like, I'm also hearing now my opponent go on TV saying like, well, the way we need to fix this is you got to vote for Democrats. Oh, and I'm oh, like, Democrats in, in November. I got to tell you. What are you saying? Like, you know, like we voted for you already. You know, like that's what we did. Like, what do you got? Talking? You've got Ted, you've got Ted Lou. You've got, um, uh, who, who else is doing it? Um, Adam Schiff for brains. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got the ones that are basically out there that are just trying to continue this perpetuation of the broken system. Well, we understand that the election is six months away, so you just have to suck it up for six months. Um, They're going to gut Roe v. Wade over the summer, but when the poll comes around, then you can vote for us. Uh, And then we'll help you. you Lord knows how many women are going to get stuck in, in this uh, in, in this situation, and, and again, uh, a number of people who really know what's going on, um, just because Roe v. Wade happened 50 years ago, uh, abortions have been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. Correct. And as a result, yeah. it always is something that people who live in, let's say, you know, for, for example, like people who live in Lakewood who have means are not going to have a problem getting an abortion. But people who live in maybe places like Alamosa may not be able to afford such a service. And so you are screwed if you do not live near a wealthy suburb or a major cityscape. So abortions are still going to happen. This is a, again, the separation of church and state and the fact that there, I've, I've been harping on this for a while, that there needs to be, and Colorado's a great state for this, There is a lot that progressives and libertarians share. And one of the things that progressives and libertarians share, probably above everything else, is civil liberties. 
stay the hell out of my business and I'll stay the hell out of yours. There are not enough libertarians that are speaking up against the evangelical right, which has completely captured the Republican Party. Just as Wall Street captured the Democrats, you know, Lori Boebert is sort of that vessel in many ways of a person who probably doesn't even really believe half the shit that comes out of her mouth, but she's going to say it because she knows where that voting base is in the state. Yeah. And so to me, I believe that this is a major sticking point. And ultimately, it comes down to are you corporate or are you not? And I think between you and your opponent, it is very distinct and something that I'm sure you are really harping on in the, on the campaign trail. And it is being well received. Would you say that that's a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that isn't even that's not a hard thing to sell for voters anymore, at least in my district, right? On one hand, I say my opponent's been in office for 25 years, and immediately there's this thing that goes through our voters' heads, which is like, oh, that's too long. No way. I don't support that. But then on top of that, when you lean into the corporate PAC discussion and say something along the lines of, you know, it's not about the individual in this moment. It's the system of corporate dollars that has saturated both parties that is preventing us from leading. I think people naturally understand that as well. And like, I'll tell you something that we're about to kind of put out tomorrow. I have uh, effectively started taking a few swings at my opponent uh, naturally just to kind of elevate and in a respectful way, of course, you know, it's time to kind of like turn it up a notch. And, you know, when we're talking about corporate funding, right. Um, just give me a second to pull something up. My manager. All right, while you're doing that, I want to put something up for people because we're talking about something that is very important and very kind of personal. Like to me, I um, support an organization. It's BWE Fund. It's Broward Women Women's Emergency Fund.org. And this is an organization for us. This is my local one, and I'm I was one of their initial like monthly donors. And the, these women are amazing and they will find funding for any women in need in Broward that want to have abortion services and can't afford to. And this is a fund for that. And you can be a monthly donor. It's a great organization. There's like no admin costs. I know these two women and it's truly amazing. So guys, if you, if this is something that's important to you, especially right now, instead of sending to like Planned Parenthood, which is not necessarily always our friend, consider finding your local emergency women's fund. Um, So in Broward, it's BW bwefund.org. Yes. Sorry, I had to do it. It's good. No, support bwefund.org. Everybody, don't, don't not do <laughs> no, that. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> yeah, that was my little plug. Well, and I mean, for good reason, right? Like, and just going back to the corporate uh, public citizen, I'm assuming everybody follows that. They just put out something that says, all right, corporations funding anti-abortion political committees since 2016. And they list a number of corporations like AT&T, 1.4 mil, CVS, 1.4 mil, Walmart, 1.2 uh, Amazon, Verizon, almost a million, Google. And then, you know, we've done a lot of research on my opponent's corporate PAC dollars and I'm looking and I'm like, okay, AT&T has basically contributed 10,000 to her this cycle, Google almost 4,000, Verizon almost 4,000. Like, it's just like, it's astonishing to me, you know? And I think that if we are more effective at highlighting the fact that these corporations don't care about who you are, what you're saying, they want the dance to just continue so that profit is being maximized while everyone else burns to the ground. Like, I think that's really what's at stake here. And I think every single progressive, every single person who's challenging a sitting incumbent, like you have to come correct with that information because uh, I do think people recognize that following the money is kind of the distinguishing factor on whether someone is telling the truth versus lying. And, you know, evidence like this speaks for itself. So very, very troubling times, you know, that we all live in. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and it's really important for people. Like we talk about electoral politics and yes, it's important. We have to work within the system, but when we look at community aid and resources, I mean, to some extent, and you, you strike me as someone who really gets this, uh, we're sort of left to our own devices and it's really important for us to sort of like really form networks and communities and be able to help each other because you can't, I mean, the electoral politics is kind of a very small part of the process. And, um, as, and you know, when people get entrenched, they seem to do less and less, which is amazing that they brag on their experience. Cause I'm like, if you did such a good job, we wouldn't be in this mess in the first place. Like yeah. your experience is exactly why this is where we are. Does your, uh, does, uh, representative to get have any ties to the fracking industry? Well, I mean, the biggest connection would be through Excel, uh, which I don't think is directly like fracking right. per se, but, Big greenhouse gas emitter uh, punting their commitment to like the renewable energy benchmark, uh, or at least actively trying to do that, and remarkably hiking the rates on their you know customers to get there. So uh, the answer I don't think is exactly that clear cut. But at the end of the day, she's accepting money from you know one of the biggest polluters in our state. So uh, and you know it isn't just about where you get donations from, it's also where you invest your money in, as we have seen a lot lately. Our congressional representative actually had the highest single return on investment in her pre-invest of the uh, war in Ukraine or the invasion of Russia. And she went was like, I think she had like a 64% return on investment in a drilling and fracking company. So you wouldn't say, okay, she necessarily gets money from that specific industry, but I'd say she's profiting. You know, like I'd say that that's um, a pretty interesting motivation a of, of these, policy. Uh, a lot of these. Can you believe that? Yeah, and a lot of these corporate representatives move money through law firms now. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much money, and I also think that it's very challenging for individuals to kind of dissect the paper trail. You know, like there are great services that exist for us out here. Like we obviously learned into like Open Secrets, FollowTheMoney.org, but those records only go back to like. 2011 you know what i mean in some cases and i'm like well what about like the 10 years before that you know what i mean like surely there's even more money that's been on the table for a lot of these representatives to receive but yeah it's incumbent upon all of us to look into that that's that's an important point one of the huge advantages that you do have in this race um much as uh cory bush and aoc and ilhan omar um you know when you are in a major cityscape it allows you to walk the dis- the district in a much uh easier fashion yeah. Uh, than you otherwise would be if you had to campaign in the suburbs like we do. Uh, so when you are able to hit a lot of people and obviously, um, it, you know, Denver's a very hip city. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of nightlife. There's a lot of culture. Yeah. So being able to meet people is probably uh, relatively easy, which yeah. is a good thing. And that is something that I'm sure your opponent doesn't really do. Uh, you're not going to see her out there canvassing. So I'm yeah. guessing much like we were just in Cleveland helping out Nina, even though she didn't win. But yes. but it goes without saying that the ground game is something that really mitigates this problem. So with that said, when is the primary? And would you say that this is a campaign that is being defined by the ground game? A hundred percent. Like that is what I came here to do, which is run a campaign that allowed me to be in front of people, that allowed them to see me, feel me, understand what I'm trying to do. Because we know that that interaction is actually the most important thing. And so, you know, whereas my opponent, I think, to your point, uh, will not 
walk doors, right? We'll invest into the kind of same traditional, like big money kind of investments that so many other members use to kind of get over the finish line year after year. Uh, you know, we're not only going into people's neighborhoods and knocking on their doors, but, you know, Denver now is a city full of renters. And we have, between like my entire team, we know like hundreds of people who live in different apartment complexes uh, all over the district. And all you need is one person in that building to give you permission to walk in. And that is actually been really fruitful for us as well, because like which renter does not want to buy a home, right? What right. renter is not in a position where they're yeah. feeling like economically challenged to do all the things that they're seeing a lot of wealthier Americans do. And that's where we kind of shine. Cause I'm like, well, I'm a lifelong renter too. I definitely don't want to be that, but uh, this is just kind of the game we're stuck in and those things yeah. really make a difference. And so, you know, we've been hosting a number of like outdoor park venue, like kind of things. And we've been trying to go into neighborhoods every single day. Uh, like that is the commitment for our team. Now it's like multiple times a day, get out of the community, leave some lit, talk to some people. And it's been really like, it's actually been a lot of fun to be honest. It's been like one of the most enjoyable yeah. parts of the campaign, which is just like talking with people, getting yeah. to know them. Like that's really cool to me. Uh, yeah, and, I, found, yeah. I found a lot of that really fun too. I just wanted yeah. to suggest like a, another place where we did really well, where it was really good as far as like getting camp, like talking to people was any event that involves food trucks. Absolutely. Any event that involves food trucks, we would go like every, all of those things because you can really meet a lot of people while they're waiting for food and you're not really interrupting them because yeah. you're not not already eating right like so it's this perfect opportunity and the other thing we did that i thought was really good was going to neighborhood association meetings definitely we've hit every neighborhood that's association meeting every right. house that is where it's at and i think that's also where people are likeliest to kind of promote organically from uh yeah. and we have certainly been like in that space and yeah it's kind of cool seeing two very distinct cultures of campaigns like kind of take shape in our city at this moment in time and you know, like uh, the Nina Turner uh, story still it's is. Harsh. Like, it's yeah, harsh. I mean, uh, it's going to be a hell. Of, huh? Sorry. There's going to be a hell of a lot more losses than there are wins, especially well, if you try to climb the mountain. Well, let's. I'll, I'll say this: like one, I had the pleasure of meeting Nina Turner last year. Uh, she came here, uh, you know, for a fundraiser, and thankfully through some people who were trying to help us out. You know, I got to be in the room with her, and we talked, and I was like. When you feel her and see her in person, it's a different thing. Yes. Right? Like she's, she's, she's everything. She's, she's got special. all of the things you you want to see from someone uh, who's trying to champion people, right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, I respect her choice to run. I think it was the right move because I do believe that, you know, you need to build upon what you created. And I think that was what I would have done in her position. Um, but, like, her story represents so much of what, like, what we're trying to do, what – people like, you know, Cisneros in Texas are trying to do, which is bring something that is organic, grassroots, people-powered to the table and take us away from the framework that's put us in this position, which is, you know, the corporate pack, big party kind of politics that so many of us are disenfranchised. And what I'll say is, you know, I think that we got to be more motivated to try to step in, you know, like it hurt really bad to see Nina lose, but there are still real opportunities, especially in places like forget my race, which I do think is a real opportunity. And I think we're benefiting from the fact that people are not projecting us up in the same way that Nina Turner was projected. Like, people tried to make her a target. Right. We know that. Right. And I'm I'm benefiting from the fact that I think people are underestimating 
how well we're doing. And that's a different kind of thing to be in. Right. But, you know, we can take victories uh, in certain districts this year. And I think it's really time, you know, for Texas to take that step up. Like I hope people focus a lot on that race. Uh, You know, even if it's not D versus D, for example, like I know that uh, somebody named Marcus Flowers, I think is challenging like Marjorie Taylor Greene in Oklahoma. And I'm like, please like take, take that seat, you know, like it. Here's the problem. Um, I don't, um, I don't have a lot of respect for those particular candidates because as bad as Marjorie Taylor Greene is, she's in a plus 27 art district. So those who are going to run against her as a Democrat already know that it is a fool's errand. You're kind of wasting resources. And they're doing it because a lot of people want to get a job. And I don't blame people for wanting to get a job, but let's be honest, um, political money, especially nowadays, is really hard to come by. And in a state like Georgia in particular, you know, we just had on Michael Owens, who's running for secretary of state. You know, he could really use that money a lot more than with all due respect. That's a fair point. Yeah. yeah, and he's not the only one who's running for that seat. You know, a lot of them are all running like, I'm running against Marjorie Taylor Greene, donate right. to my campaign. By the way, I can't win. Right. You know, it's it's like, that's where strategy... Yeah, there has to be strategy. There's something about this movement, whether it's the movement that, um, you know, that Nita moves that Nita's going to make, that Marianne is going to make. You know, we all have to be strategic about where resources can be allocated most effectively. It's true. I think your race... Mm-hmm. It's a race that is very important and absolutely does deserve a lot of attention. I have a question for Neil. This is now going to be my new vetting question. Okay. This is going to be my new vetting question. Okay. Am I I like the first test of this vetting question? All right, let's go. My very first vetting question. If you were in Congress right now, would you have endorsed Nina Turner in this race? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like, like. That's now has to be my vetting question of people that are even so-called, you know, left and populist, because apparently you also need to specify spine. You can be good on policy, but if you've got no spine, it's not going to really matter. And if you don't see the importance of bringing in other people that are on your page, it's like what you were saying about your representative. You can care about abortion issues, but if you're not going to fight against the filibuster, then it's meaningless. It's the same thing. If you're going to say you want to have a progressive agenda, but you don't help other progressive people come in and you bend the knee to someone like Chantel Brown or you know whoever is funding her, then we don't need you either. So yeah, like this is going to now be my new kind of barometer. It's like, would you do that? And I will, if people get in, hold them to these, these things. Well, I have I mean, memory of an elephant. I'll say that I'll as someone that. who's never run for office and has, you know, like, even though I've worked in politics, like very much, I think someone who's considered like an outside, just like the Denver political culture that exists here, um, yeah. you know, having people like Marianne, like put their name on the line for me was something that really gave me uh, a framework and allowed me to take a step up that I don't know if I would have been able to take. And so for me, like I have met a number of amazing people all over this country who are running for office, uh, who are looking for just like a a little bit of a boost. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, so to your point, you know, like, and obviously like Nina, it's like not a little boost, like that's a huge, huge endorsement to get and like support someone with. You know, one of the things I was wondering about, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, which is like, you know, why do you think there wasn't the same? Because like last year, you know, we saw something very different, right? Like the whole world 
the whole country mobilized around Nina, as did a lot of other progressives in Congress to try to get that over the finish line, right? Now she's yeah. the second time a lot. I know the situation's a little bit different, right? In the sense that like the, the mountain's a little bit higher now, right? Because I think Democrats really, sorry, the, the, the party has really clamped down on protecting uh, the institution, right? We know that's a fact. I don't think the Democratic Party ever wants to see the AOC story happen again, if they can, no. they can help it. So I guess my question is like, knowing that we do have a number of far more progressive leaders in Congress than we did before, like where do you think the decision to not, I think, lean in 100% came from? Like what is the motivating factor in your opinion to that? Because I noticed that too, right? Like, I think it's extremely nefarious. I think it goes up the food chain kind of high. Um, I think ultimately what it comes down to, though, is I don't care. Like they're threatened with something, whatever that is. They're threatened with something. Is it that you're not going to get this committee? You're not going to get this funding. You're going to we're going to find somebody to primary you. It's they're, they're, they're threatened by something. OK, yeah. um, but but the whole point of being in that job is to have the backbone to fight against what like that should not be a factor unless what you're really concerned with is advancing your career. So if you're concerned with advancing your career, and the reason I know this is because there was somebody who did endorse Nina even before the Progressive Caucus endorsed Chantel Brown, and that's Katie Porter. And so, and she's in a more vulnerable district than a lot of these other people are. So I'm going to say it's backbone and it's having some. And I, and I also think that there's a certain amount of um, confidence that certain people have where they're not dependent on this for a job. And they know that they're bringing all that there is that people in their district want and they're confident in their abilities so they can be their truthful selves. And I think that shame on every like this is now my new barometer question, because I think if you do not have the guts to do that or if you're going to sit there and let the head of your caucus say there's two good progressives in that race, then you are nothing. I'm sorry. You stand for nothing. Oh, and um, I just think it's ridiculous. Like you do not get to call yourself a progressive caucus and endorse a corporate whore. Well, Sorry. Like, I mean, if we wanted to talk about the CPC, like that's another uh, topic of combo that we could I get into. I would like to stand up to that. Well, that's yeah. that's it. And and if you're not, then that's weak, and we don't need more of that. Um, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, and it becomes a much bigger problem because you know it's one thing if you stay out of the race; it's another thing if you've been instructed otherwise. Correct. It's another thing entirely that Representative Pocan, who um, he still has quite a reputation of basically being a good, uh, you know, errand boy for uh, Pelosi and, uh, and Clyburn. And so as a result, uh, you know, he's uh, he's even in some ways worse than Jayapal because uh, he'll go out there and say, you know, two good progressives. Again, you're you completely debase that word. It doesn't really mean anything. No. So what we've made a habit of saying is you are a you're a non-corporate or a non-corporate populist. That's basically what it is, because you can't co-opt those terms. You can't. You have to define it clearly. Progressive has been co-opted has. just as somebody who says they're moderate. Yeah, somebody who says they're a progressive is really a centrist, and somebody who says they're a moderate is really a conservative. And so, in many ways, We're, the Overton window has severely shifted completely. And of course, if you are not going to address the fact that corporate special interest money capturing our government and its elected officials, then you are not talking about anything that matters, as far as I'm concerned, because that is everything, and it covers everything. everything. Yeah, it's 
it intersects every aspect Everything. of this entire thing, right? So that's I feel that. Well, and I appreciate you asking me that question, and I'm happy to, to say. Yeah, it. Like, I just think of it now. Like we, I need we need people with balls, Neil. We <laughs> really need people with some balls. I'm serious. You're you not going to. I think. I think. Well, yeah. I'll tell you this, like I run into this here a lot too, right? And it's like, so my wife, when I started this, she she told me, she's like, what's the question that's going to guide you? Like question of like, why am I doing this? Like, what is the thing that you're trying to do? And for me, it was like, okay, well, I'm not just going to Congress to be elected into Congress. Like for me, it was, I care about ending homelessness. Uh, I care about transforming, transforming, you know, like working class, middle class communities and the communities that are able to not just live in this country, but thrive. Like, that's why I want to go there. Um, but what I do run into a lot are people who think like the answer is, well, I want to be in Congress. right? right. Oh, I want to be in office. And I'm like, ah, like that's, that's not good enough anymore. Right? Like you being elected for the sake of being elected actually does nothing for the rest of us. Right. And it's the same kind of mentality I have with, okay, like, do you support candidates of color? And I'm like, naturally I do. But at the end of the day, I'm also like, well, what are they, what are they advocating for now? Like, it's not enough to be a person of color anymore for me. It's not enough to be a Democrat, right? Like, are you taking corporate PAC money? First and foremost, yes or no. Uh, what are the policies you care about? Are you actually trying to make a difference in the lives of vulnerable communities or not? Like, I think these are the metrics or the measurements we really need to now start focusing on because you know, your benchmark question is like, would you have done this? And mine is like, well, why are you going there? Right? Like this, what is the thing that you're trying to achieve? And I've talked to a lot of candidates who I think have a tough time, like answering that question, which is an immediate tell for me where I'm like, uh, okay, like, you know. And we are transforming politics into service. That's like the whole point of it is to bring us back to, this is supposed to be a term of public service. Yeah. And somehow it's this lifelong lucrative career that lends itself to even more lucrative careers in the lobbying industry when you go out the revolving door. Like it's so obscene and it's so blatant. Like even just recently, like the whole thing with the insider trading with them, like they're and they so still haven't done filthy. anything about it. And it's now four months in. They have it's, it's just it's so blatant. And I, I keep having this flash to do you remember Back to the Future 2, the, the dystopian Biff universe, the dystopian yeah, yeah. We've become that. I, like that's how I see it, and and it's just unbelievable to me. I feel like, and then with all the other things, I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day. You know, that like we have weapons of mass destruction. Oh, it's chemical weapons. It's whatever it is. Like I'm in Groundhog Day. Well, and I think about this a lot too, uh, which is like I think like a lot of corporations want you to be right there, right? Like. We're now in this like kind of reality where I think people really want you to believe that if you go outside, if you go talk to people, like the country that we're living in is burning to the ground, right? <laughs> and I think like if you go on Twitter, if you go on corporate media, like you will believe that, right? Like that is what – and I think it's all because of the, they just want profit, right? Like they want you to glue in to the metaverse. They want you to glue into the computer. They want you to be there because they want a profit, right? And if you don't believe that real life – is worth saving, then you're going to invest into the tech companies and all these things. And that furthers, in my opinion, what you've just said, right? And why we think that the grassroots door-to-door approach is so important because like, if you fully think the world exists the way that we tweet about it, we're lost. We've already lost this, right? Because for me, you know, I think we might've talked about this, like that topic of like bipartisanship. I'm like, well, in politics, that's dead to me, right? Like there's no 
real culture of bipartisanship, but that can actually still exist in community, right? Like you don't have to necessarily uh, agree with everyone, but like I'll talk with Republicans who will like sit with me and be like, you know what, the environment's in trouble. And I'm like, I know, like crazy, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Like that's somewhere we can start from. I'll talk to people who are conservative who are like, God, healthcare costs are killing me right now. And I'm like, yeah, I feel that. Like I'm going through that too. And if you can find a point of agreement to then build on, like, yeah, sure, you might get lost in the ideas of how to get to the outcome you want to get to. But I mean, the grassroots thing has really, I think, like motivated me to just believe in people a lot more than I used to. Uh, yeah. And I think that's like where we got to be at. And you said this earlier, right? Like empower the community, empower the block. And I know I'm running for Congress, but like people need to lean into local elections too, right? Like run for your school board, oh, um, yeah. run for your city council, like go for the clerk positions, like do all that. Cause that's, I think really where I think you can transform lives in a very direct way. And we need more people who think that Congress as well as local government are equally important. And so, you know, this is this is what we need to do, because I think these these conservatives have figured out that uh, local government is a target now. So (laughs) I always like I'll talk to anybody. And I, I bet you anything that we'll find something we agree on. And all, yeah, it's not it's yeah. not really an issue. And it's very easy to do that. And it's very easy to get along with people when you're not talking partisan. One yeah. of the greatest equalizers that we talk about is labor. And when you go to and you see these, you know, whatever these, you know, the rallies and the, the unions that are forming, there's social and liberal people like, you know, you've got any liberal and conservative people socially um, on that spectrum, but yet they all would like a working wage, living wage. Yeah. And so, and so your campaign obviously is very important. When is primary day? Yes. And how can people get involved? Absolutely. So look, primary June 28th. So we have about, little less than two good months left to make history in the Maha city, send the first person of color to ever represent this city in the halls of Congress, but also the only person in federal politics here who has never accepted corporate PAC money. So there's a lot on the line. Uh, the entire like roadmap between now and June is if you are here in the Maha city and you can give me an hour of your week uh, every week to either knock doors or make phone calls, like, that's what I need right now. I need people to lean in the moment to help us knock doors and go out every single day. And that's what's going to win this election. I have seen this unfold every door I have knocked. It is clear to me that this is the path to victory. And so the more people power we can get, the better we have a chance at winning it. If you don't live in my state and you believe in what we're trying to do, then the clear answer to you is please donate financially to the campaign. Uh, that is always a need. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter how late it is or like we can always print more resources. We can always invest. Uh, into more ads and things like that. So if you have the ability to throw five bucks, 10 bucks at the campaign, go to the website, neilwallierforcongress.com, make a small donation. Uh, that'd be great. And of course, if you want to follow on social, all my handles yeah. are on the website. Uh, I'll say this, you know, TikTok has been very successful for me in like a yeah. way that I wasn't expecting. Cause I'll tell y'all like, you know, I'm 33 uh, and for the last like three, four years, uh, I haven't been on TikTok and I've been saying a lot of things like, I don't get it. It's for the young kids. It doesn't make sense. Actually, it allows you to achieve something that I think very few apps do. Right. Like I've noticed that people in politics, when you're messaging on campaigns, you're always talking at people. Right. You're always like, 
vote for me. Here's the policy you need to care about. Here's how you need to get involved. On TikTok, it actually allows you to converse with people very effectively, and it gets past the point of it's not just about politics in that conversation. It's about who are you? Can I ask you questions? Can I engage with you? It's really enhanced kind of the grassroots people power feel of what we're trying to do. So if you're looking to get involved online, like definitely hit me up on TikTok, Twitter and all those things. It's a good time. And I uh, appreciate yeah. all the support. And I appreciate you guys for letting me back on. Thank you. It's always a uh, fun well, to chat. You know, no, uh, you're, you're one of my favorite people, actually. And when you're so funny, because you say like person of color and I'm like, he's a col- I think of it. You're a colorful person. Like, yeah, no. And I and I think this would be great. And I do obviously have a special place in my heart for that area. I went to college in Colorado, so um, Boulder, granted, but I have friends from Denver and I spent a lot of time there. And it's, you know, it's important, people, because we have a chance of getting rid of a filthy corporate or incumbent that is one of the problems. Yeah. So yeah. any opportunity to do that is definitely a good yeah. one. Well, I, well, we'll have to put it on the calendar if we have an opportunity to make it, uh, you know, out to Denver in the next oh, six weeks. Please let me know. We'd love to have more canvassing on the ground. He's just looking at like, where could we, where could we go? That would be a good fun place to go. That's what he's thinking. He's like, Ooh, Colorado. Well, they have a lot of great food in call in, in Denver. So, you know, that's There's a lot of it. Among, among other things, right? Yeah. <laughs> cool. Look at pool halls. Well. Greatest bookstore of all time. Yeah. You know, he knows which bookstore. What are you talking about? Tattered? You're talking about another one? Yeah. yeah sure. tattered yeah. Cover shout, out to, shout out to Kwame, the CEO. He's, he's, he's a good guy. Oh, love that bookstore. Uh, if you know all the small business owners, you're almost halfway to, to work. Oh, it's, it's a big piece of the game, man. So that We did Small Business Saturdays, and we canvassed small business specifically on Saturdays. Okay. Yeah. So promoted the business. So you're out there going into businesses and yeah. you're meeting the people and you're telling them and you're doing social media promoting that small business while you're there. It's amazing how you yeah. can make connections with people. The best. Yeah. And yeah. they're looking for help too. Like them yes. for another time. Small businesses are in trouble. So Oh yeah. They are. They yeah, are. we can definitely do that another time. But 100%. um I it was good talking to you, my cool. friend. Appreciate y'all. Then we'll be in touch again. Have a good day, y'all. I think thank you. Well, brother. Take care. So again, uh He's there, are, lovely. there are a lot of great candidates that are out there. There really are. He people. certainly is one that oh, yeah. the cream rises to the top as the as the macho man. You know said. where in the Mile High City is the mile, right? No. It's on the Capitol. It's at the if you go to the Capitol in Denver and you're on this, you go up the steps of the Capitol, there is the step that says you're at one mile oh. and literally the capital is basically at a mile high. And that's why it's called mile high city. If you guys like our content, as you know, uh, you helped us get to Cleveland to and lots canvas. of superfluous information like about the mile high city. Mm. So when we get to go to Cleveland and canvas and get out there and help, uh, you are a big part of that because that's how we're getting there. Uh, same would be true. If you want to see us go in the next six weeks out to Denver to canvas on behalf of Neil Walia who I think is an exceptional candidate. Yeah, he's uh, great. Tell he's really good. And obviously who he's going up against is really crappy. So Because yeah. it really, the truth is, people have to just like you. They, they do. do. They have to like you. And Especially that, liberals. Yeah. And you, they have to feel good around you. And you have to be warm. It's the truth. And he is, I think, an exceptionally good personable candidate, like him going and knocking on doors. Like he's an exceptionally good candidate, I think. So, guys, remember, 
patreon.com forward slash generational change. As little as $5 a month, you can help us out. It really does make a big difference. Yeah. And we're obviously seriously. very grateful for your support. Uh, what do we have coming up? What we have coming up on Monday is we're going to be speaking with our good friend, Erica Smith, who's running for Congress in North Carolina's Carolina first district. One. Another first district. Yeah. Number one. We're number one. Uh, she has an excellent chance of uh I love her too, but she, and she actually, we're talking about, has that somewhat of a good name recognition. She has been serving in their state Senate for three terms. So she is somebody that is not coming from obscurity. This Correct. is somebody who has um, somewhat of an infrastructure that's in place, which is very promising. And the fact is she is somebody who is correct on the issues. Yeah. And she listen, really is. the corporate establishment can only block so many candidates, but they made it their mission. Listen, uh, Erica Smith is fantastic. She's not Nina Turner. Nina Turner mm -hmm. is on a whole other level of leadership uh, in regards to what the movement can become. And she really uh, took it on the chin. But again, um, you know, we can't not address some of the things that we noticed when we were there. Uh, Cleveland is a fantastic city, but it is an extremely depressed city. Uh, people really, um, it seems like a ghost town at, at times. Okay, well, it is underpopulated, which is actually, to me, one of the hugest selling points of Cleveland. I would actually move somewhere just because it's underpopulated. But you drive around there. And there's a couple things that I notice very specifically. One, it needs a lot of love. Yeah, the uh, you, you want to talk about infrastructure broken down. You know, Sean, just, you know, you know, Representative Brown likes to brag about how she helped with infrastructure. Uh, I don't see that uh, city getting much of anything in the way of infrastructure. She, yes, she's been there for like five minutes. Yeah. But um, the other thing that I think is really interesting about Cleveland, and this is something that I liked, like at different levels of neighborhoods. So just working class neighborhood where you had. Houses, modest houses, like maybe they probably needed some work, but this was like a middle class neighborhood. And you will see that it's black and for the most part doing OK. There's businesses up the street. This is not like a bad neighborhood. Like this is just a typical neighborhood. And I look at that. And to me, that represents such an opportunity. And this is what you were saying, like a town like that to get a little bit of socialism. Like they are so on the cusp of being able to have like thriving um, black communities there, middle class communities there. And it's just, it's so obvious that it just needs a little something. Yeah. And it's not going to get that from who's there now. It's just not. In addition, um, this is an exceptionally older part of the country. Um, you know, when we were canvassing, we noticed that overwhelmingly the doors we were knocking on were of older residents. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a couple of residents that we knocked on the doors. They were over 100 years old. Yeah. There's so. a very old there. It is definitely their demographic does lean older for sure. And that is ultimately something where, you know, the, the hardest demographic to infiltrate electorally is the older black community. And so women, specifically, women specifically. older black women are like the hardest on the spectrum of conversion to with idea, they're definitely on the hardest side of it. There's a number of things we learned along the way, of course. Um, look, it cannot be overstated uh, what an impact Jim Clyburn uh, has on the black, the older black community. Uh, they are still very much, um, you know, they see him as uh, as a champion of the civil rights era. But you know, one thing people t tend to forget is that you are not always the person that you were 60 years ago. John Lewis was not the same person that he was 60 years ago. When Don Shula. Was it's a Don Shula effect, man. 
Yeah, Don Shula was an amazing coach in the 1970s. And then lived off of being the winningest coach because he had been playing the longest. Correct. Forever. Point and, he did, and he did have Dan Marino. They jumped the shark. They did. And they didn't manage the team well. And of course, in the case of politics, uh, you become so entrenched. Uh -huh. You know, again, if I were, if anybody was running against Jim Clyburn, like Marcel Dixon is running against, but unfortunately, Marcel has no money. Now, if you had a real legitimate operation to run against him, I would simply just point out the fact, and this is something that really matters in the black community, that Representative Clyburn takes more money than anybody from Big Pharma. Um, Democrat or Republican. Tim Black run against him. Yeah. You see, that's the kind of guy that needs to run against him. <laughs> well, I, that would be glorious to me. Like that right there would be one of the greatest. That the, Democrats, awesome. the Democrats are also infinitely more guilty of lifer, uh, you know, politics. Uh, Mitch McConnell in the, in the GOP is in many ways an exception to the rule. But, you know, let's be honest. I mean, even the GOP uh, lifers that are there, uh, they all end up cashing out at some point, go working for some, you know, lobbying firm or some yeah. crap. But, you know, Dianne Feinstein in many ways is emblematic of the party. You know, Wasserman Schultz will sit in Congress until she dies. And there are people who think, well, there's no way that would happen. I'm like, oh, yes, there is. Yeah, because we it's have done. there. It's basically we've got monarchies. And yeah. in certain districts, I know here in South Florida, our politics is very, very like um, not just corrupt, but old school corrupt. But the people that are sitting in those seats actually feel entitled to bequeath that seat to the person that they want to give it to when they're ready to step down. There is actually a feeling of entitlement to do that. Um, it's really bizarre to me. I find that to be completely um, non-democratic. And it's just very, I just, to me, there is a special place in hell, like Madeleine Albright said about women who don't support women. No, Madeleine, it's actually about any people from vulnerable communities that then stand on those vulnerable communities to better themselves. If you are from a vulnerable community and you sell out your own people, I, there is just a special place in hell for people like that. So I, I find it disgusting. I can tell you this on good authority that Marsha Fudge was working behind the scenes uh, on behalf of Sean Brown. I know. Um, not a lot of people know that. Uh, so that's one thing that was going on. Um, another thing that cannot be understated is how much of an influence, and we say this all the time, there's a difference between labor and unions. And so one of the things that became a huge sticking point with this particular election is the fact that the Teamsters and the AFL-CIO got behind Chantel. And they were out there in full force, uh, boots on the ground, campaigning for a candidate who is entrenched in corporate money, and that means they're anti-labor. Right. So to say that the top-down approach is the wrong way, and that's how unions do it, the bottom-up approach is how labor does it, like Chris Smalls. This is a bottom-up movement you're seeing right now between Amazon, Starbucks, yeah. hopefully Walmart. And I, hope, for. and I hope that we can bring enough awareness, not we, but just in general we, about the distinction between union management and rank and file and how that works. Because, you know, in the Chris Smalls case, yeah, that was one of the best things about that is that they're their own independent union. They're in charge of their union. Like they they're going to retain some serious rank and file control there. But a lot of unions, that's not the case. That's a good name. 
What? Nasty Pelosi. I like that. Oh, That's she's good. just horrible. Uh, yes, uh, she is it's trying. It's very common. She is trying to give that. Uh, she's trying to give that seat to Christine Pelosi, her daughter, and her daughter Christine Pelosi, like the dumbass McBang Bang that she is, uh, decided to make a unbelievably ridiculous statement, um, like they all have. You know, this is one thing you have to say when we're gonna if we're gonna address. Um, you know, this this huge issue regarding uh, Roe v. Wade. Uh, the Democrats have had decades to codify this issue, but they won't. And you want to know why they haven't codified it? Because it hurts fundraising. This is a fundraiser's dream, is to be able to say the big bad GOP are trying to take your abortion rights Which away. they are. Which they are. No, I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate letting, fear. But they are letting it happen on course. Correct. They're allowing it to be, right. And they get to be Mick resistance. So when they go out there and they say, it's your fault that you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. No, it is Debbie Wasserman Schultz's fault for rigging the primary on behalf of Hillary Clinton that fractured the party and allowed Trump to sneak through. It all comes down to Debbie for him. Remember, no one wants to talk about the fact that the reason why Hillary lost the Rust Belt to Trump is because most of those voters were Obama voters that crossed over and voted for Trump. And that's the truth. So you can sit here and you can point the finger at Jill Stein and at uh, third party voters. Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon. Well, listen, we all bow. We bow at the altar of Susan, Susan Sarandon. Sarandon. We all know that. I really need to get, I, I think I've seen it, but I really want to get it. You know, they have those like saint candles. I think there's a Susan there Sarandon. There is. But there okay, because I have a Frida one. I need to get the Susan Sarandon one. It's guys, so if you've got, funny. Guys, if anybody can find the Susan Sarandon. Uh, you I'll know, find Catholic it. Catholic candle. I, I, yeah, really because really we need to all like, you know, pray to Susan Sarandon. Oh, we um, do. This is like when George Carlin talks about Joe Pesci. It's the same thing. I like pray to Joe Pesci because he is somebody who gets things done. <laughs> I wonder if Pesci liked that joke. I'm sure he did. You yeah. have to. I mean, how could you not? First of all, if you get mentioned by George Carlin, I think that's a win. Yeah. Like that's your you are now you are now memorialized historically in that. You know, I think that's pretty special. But again, the only reason we're standing at this point is because of that. And uh, the obsession, the obsession with Hillary Clinton. Oh, if you put a tweet out that says God, Hillary was right about everything. Oh, I swear to God, you. you all you all <laughs> need to get. So I'm telling you, my, you got you guys have to understand. I come from New Jersey and I'm and I'm part Irish. So I have like a really nasty streak in my blood. Like I really want to be <laughs> just like, so you know, I, <laughs> Yeah, it's just random. It's just random. Wrong. But wow. we know what you mean, Mario, for yeah. Senate parliamentarian. Yeah. But there, are some, but there are some people who just need, and I can throw a hard punch. So there are some people who just uh, kind of need to get their, you know. I say that about some people with those girls, some of those girls in Congress, that they just never had a good ass kicking when they were younger, and yeah. they really need it. Yeah. I mean, again, the, the virtue signaling that I see on social media is nauseating. Debbie was out there today leading the march of, uh, you know, uh, you know, for in favor of and, Roe v. Wade. And, 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 Save the, it. And, and look, the pe going to a rally with the same people at the same place. All, in your little echo chamber. Yeah, it's an echo chamber. You're not actually doing anything. You're not codifying the law and you are allowed. And again, you're not attracting more people to the party. You are not going to be. Um, what do you look for? My BWF. Oh, we're bringing it up again. Oh, OK. I'll okay, OK. So unfortunately, uh, this is a huge, huge sticking point. And so ultimately, uh, we're never going to get where we need to go until we recognize that 
when somebody says, for example, we mentioned before, Ted Lou or Adam Schiff, uh, any of these guys, if what they are saying is you just got to vote for more Democrats in November. Uh, no, actually, Roe v. Wade is being taken away right now, six months ahead of the election. With three, with all three branches, basically, that could control the situation, controlled by Democrats that could actually make this happen so the, that we don't have to worry about it. Does anybody want to talk about the fact that the president of the United States is anti-choice? You know, the amazing thing, and this is the irony of it all, Trump is pro-choice. Well, he's everyone, had to be. Well, and everyone knows that he is. Now, of course, Mike Pence isn't. But That's the it. fact that Joe Biden is anti-choice and everyone knows that he is, and they're not willing to even push him slightly on it, not even say, you know, Joe, for the good of the country, you need to do the right thing right now. No, Joe is, of course, and he's a horrible Catholic, but he is a Catholic. And for them, this is a really important issue, but they don't actually believe in the separation of churches. And they don't actually care about the life once it's born. So when we have people that come on our podcast, like Bill, and we appreciate him being here, again, correct, the separation of church and state, as it says in the Constitution, is that a state shall make no religion a sole religion, that you have to adhere to one specific belief. But you know what else that is an interpretation of? It means that your religion cannot be bestowed upon me to follow. Just because you believe that abortion is a sin doesn't mean it is for somebody else. And the law of the land says that a woman has a right to control her body. Not for long. Not for long. And our be, make no mistake, people, if Joe Biden wanted to codify that and have it be safe, he could absolutely have that happen. All It's really it's like people know how that could happen. So you don't get to say that you and he doesn't. But even like people like our congresswoman who are out there marching in the streets for this. But would she vote to get rid of the filibuster? Would she support the whole idea of, you know, creating a codification for this? Is she pushing for that? Of course not. So they're, they're, they're so full of crap. And let me be very clear. I am, I am beyond a pro-choice individual. So if you weren't on before, what I have on the screen, it's bwefund.org and that's Broward Women's Emergency Fund. Um, I'm one of their sustainers. It's something that's important to me. I just, you know, I don't always bring it up because it's just not usually like front and center, but this is an organization here in Broward locally that makes sure that any woman in Broward who would like to have abortion services and can't afford to do so will have the funds to do so. Um, it is local. All the money goes to helping people. There's no administration. And it's just it's as local as I feel like I can help the people right around me as best I can. Yeah. So if, and, and for anybody who if you have a similar type thing, look for that in your area because it's just. Try to keep it local, people, where you really know, you know, where the money's going. Um, I happen to know the two the women who run BUF, and it is a completely cool, legit, they are all about, like, community and helping. So, anyway, that's what that is, guys. You can even be, you can be monthly donors, which is what I do. Um, but right now, I think it's just, if you want to, instead of standing out in your echo chamber and protesting with a sign and having cars honk at you, Throw some money if you can, or spread the word and donate to this organization. For, for any of those groups that were out there yesterday, 
whether it is obviously led by Debbie, uh, the women's uh, women's club of West Brown. Yeah, they're all you in know? that. They're loving it. If you're out there and you're saying that we have to protect Roe v. Wade, uh, you know what you need to do? You need to tell the president of the United States that he has to codify Roe v. Wade. And if you don't do that, then you are not serious about this issue because your position in politics is more important. You are not willing to piss off people in power because ultimately the Democrats are loving this. They think this is going to help them in the midterms. But I got news for you. It isn't because if they don't do anything right now in the next probably six to eight weeks. Yeah, they're there. They are. They might even lose worse. The, you know, Kyle Kalinske was saying today that this is going to help the Democrats in the midterms. No, no one's going to believe you because right here, right now, I've seen enough of it on social media. When Ted Lieu and the rest of them are telling them, well, we don't have the votes or Sean Patrick Maloney, <laughs> re- head of the DCCC, congressional representative in New York, who's actually in a competitive district. It's only a plus one D. That's a district that could go to the GOP or could be flipped. In a, Here's a hoping primary. if he's such a douche. You, you I, you know what? Uh, I, I can't even like you're just beside yourself. <laughs> like his tweet was so bad where he basically said, this is all the Republicans fault. Right. Everything is on the GOP. We didn't do anything wrong. We are totally innocent in all of this. So you better vote for us in November because that's the answer. That's how you solve and yet this problem. Biden was flat out asked on camera if he would support ending push for ending the filibuster, which is what you would have to do in order to put through legislation that would codify Roe v. Wade and make it so that the Supreme Court, like this is a chess game. And right now the court is obviously going to go in one direction. And so if the Democrats really, really cared about this issue, they would use their power at their disposal, like to fight so that they don't lose their queen. Like that's basically where we are. And he flat out said that he would not support ending the filibuster. He's not going to push for that right now. Okay, Joe, why don't you wait until, I don't know. What do you, (laughs) I don't want to push for that right now. Oh my God. And and Democrats are just going to support this. And, and please, when you have the worst of the worst, the worst of the worst on Capitol Hill, Paul Begala, David Korn, uh, Bogala's been one of our bootlickers. Yeah. We haven't done a good bootlicker in a while. Yeah, we kind of, you know what, in a way we probably should have for this show. We didn't even think about it, but. Oh, there are two. I I, I couldn't even narrow it down. But at this point, you know who's going to say what they're going to say. And so when they come out and say, you know, if you didn't vote for Hillary in the election, it's all on you. (laughs) You are the one who didn't do anything. And all I could think of is um, they were trying to get. Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire back in 2013. Yeah. 2013. I remember thinking to myself, this would be a good time. We, my, we talked about it. I know that it was definitely something that if I'm thinking about it, it was on their responsibility to think about you it too. People on social media who are pointing that out and then getting uh, basically called out for their hypocrisy, because as it turns out, some of those people said it was sexist to ask Ruth Bader Ginsburg to step down when she was sick. So there's that one. Well, and that's that's number one. And the thing is, and let me be very clear, I was a fan. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote the Virginia, um, the, the VMI decision, which is actually a brilliantly written decision, I must say. And that's the decision that basically allowed women into the military institute, into VMI. 
uh, where they otherwise weren't. But so Virginia my point Militaries. is, right, Virginia Military Institute. Uh, so point is, I'm, I'm a fan. And yet I, I see that as that was a very flawed thing to do and should have been foreseen. That's that's what I think. I see people that are smarter than me. If Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in office like Antonin Scalia did at the beginning of 2016, what do you think would have happened if he was in control of the Senate? Do you think that they would have forced through a conservative justice or do you think they would have kicked the can down the road as Obama and Schumer did? That could have mitigated a problem. And maybe Merrick Garland would have been agreeable to not having uh, Roe v. Wade overturned. And it would be a five to four decision in the Democrats' favor or in the liberal courts' favor. Right but I don't now. remember. Do you remember Obama fighting for that? No, he allowed McConnell to. You know, he got he got slapped. He did. And you don't want to hear that if you're a Democrat. Oh, my God, you can't say that about Obama. He had so much this, that and the other thing. No, if you are in the you see, this is the other thing that presidents don't understand or people don't understand about, about the presidents of the United States. You are a martyr, whether you want to be or not. You want the highest office in the land. You have to be willing to die for what you believe in. It is the only way people advance. The last president we had that was willing to do it was murdered in office. Yeah. To me, there are so many obvious examples of how we ended up where we are. Yeah. And the rigging of the Democratic primary in 2016. You know, when people say, how did they rig the primary? How about this for an example? You couldn't go to a local Democratic Party office at a county level during the primary and get any type of campaign paraphernalia for Bernie Sanders. Everything was for Hillary. That's rigging an election. And that's essentially, and that's exactly what just happened to Nina. And, and not only that, but the conflict of interest being that Chantel Brown is still the head of their local county party, which I don't understand how you can be that. that, that well, it's the same as, as in Georgia. Like you're the person overseeing the election, but you're running for office. So she's the head of the, of the party. This is a primary to see who represents that party. And she's the head of the party. The Democratic it's, Party has bylaws. Yeah, what is the shaking? I wonder if that's what it is. Well, it's you banging on the table a lot. He does bang, but no, I've heard if it's a consistent thing, then it's not that. Well, here's what I can tell you. Uh, It is a violation of party bylaws to run for office while you are sitting in a position on the board of the county party. In the case of Chantel Brown, she was the chair of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party, yet she was still running for Congress. And now she's an elected congressperson, which makes it even worse because she's still the chair. So when we talk about political corruption, this is deliberate. This is in your face and everyone gets all their panties in a bunch about Trump. Now, the only thing Trump really did was he exposed just how hypocritical this system really is because they're all guilty of it. You have Joe Biden from June of 2020 saying, if you elect me president of the United States, I'm going to codify Roe v. Wade. We're waiting, Joe, because you didn't do a damn thing but since then you got we, elected. But then we're complaining about Democrats, so then we must support Republicans. Like, it's, it's, we criticize corporate whoredom. 
that's the truth. And it's like, if people don't like that, that's just the sort of inconvenient truth. If you, and I do think that the party that's supposed to be the party of labor and people supposed to be in theory. Um, yeah, I think we should be able to expect more from them. I do. Just like I expected more from Obama than I did from W. I think Obama, it was a way bigger disappointment to me. Not, and it's not that I don't hold somebody like W accountable. He should be in prison. But it's because I had such greater expectations for somebody and thought he was so much more capable. And I think that I'm not saying this is a form of flattery, but I think that's the reason why we critique them so much, because they're the only ones in a position to actually do anything. And instead, they're not. They're doing all sorts of identity crap and and wedge issues and fundraising, and they're not actually doing anything. And if Joe wanted this shit done, it would get done. I'm sorry. If if Joe wanted that infrastructure bill, we'd have the infrastructure bill. It's it's not complicated, people. It's really not complicated. Look, you're in facts, man. I mean, I, hold on, I, I I, not 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 that you can go anywhere. I'll be, I, I don't want you sniffing my hair. Oh, come on, man. So listen, like, here's here's the facts, Jack. We're not changing anything around here. Nothing will fundamentally change. I I, I did say that, didn't I? I was pretty clear about that. I think in general that that's a good idea when you do that one. I think I need to move over. Like, it's really disgusting. It's so disgusting. Just, 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 just don't look. touch the hair. This is so gross. Again, you know, make America great again, man. I, I know I'm way up past my bedtime, but I, I just can't. I can't make any decisions. I've got to get along with everybody. That's illegal, you know. Not where I'm sitting, Joe. Thanks to you. Thanks to you. How many people are incarcerated for nonviolent weed offenses? 2,700 that you could pardon right now, Joe. Come on, man. I don't have that kind of power. Yeah. Not responsible for any of this. That's for sure. That's the one thing we can agree on. You are definitely, like, completely irresponsible. We're going to make this a little easier. Not not that we're going to make it safe. Make it safe for people to get an abortion without having to go to the back alley. How are you going to do that, Joe? We're going to allow the blue states to have it legal, and the and the red states, you know, some some of the red states. Uh, we we got to compromise. We have to find common ground. That's what we got to do. Don't you agree? <sighs> so I've been president for a little while, and uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not that I'm not going to run again. I'm, I'm going to run again. I'm pretty sure. If I can remember. They'll pump you up on enough meds that they'll be able to keep you. All right, man. That's what I'm talking about. That's that's good. Give me some of that good stuff. I, I like the good drugs. drugs take, you know, they, they take a little while to kick in, but those drugs are illegal for me. Yeah. Then you need to pardon and expunge all nonviolent cannabis users and sellers and all of those people. You have 2,700 people whose families would be totally changed forever. Just saying. We have nonviolent drug offenders in this country, and they need to be released from prison. Yeah, you could do that, Joe. Twenty-seven hundred of them. Come on, man! I can't do anything. That is not my okay. responsibility. Yeah, that's the responsibility of the good, hardworking people in the private prison business, and they have to make a living. Don't you understand? It's about jobs. It's about jobs, man. Yeah, it's about people it's having jobs. to work three of them, Joe. You show up for someone like Chantel Brown. Chantel's a great girl. Even though she doesn't support the Iran nuclear deal, but I don't support it either. You're right. You know why she doesn't support the Iran nuclear deal, right, Joe? 
Oh, of course. Because, uh... Was it your friends at APAC, Joe? Not that I have any friends at APAC, but they're good people, man. They're making America great again. I, I, I mean, I, I, we're building back sort of, bit. not not that we're building too high, but, you know, altogether, all it's, it, it's going to be good. So, what can I say? I'm not doing a good job, am I? It's all right. You mean you or Joe? Joe. Joe sucks, man. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. We can't figure out exactly. It's, um... Yeah, Chantel, we we had a choice of two great progressives in that race. Yeah, that's what we had. Yeah, he really, um... He had to go out for her, like... He's making it so easy for Trump and DeSantis. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would say, with as much as anything that we do, um, we've gotten to the point where pulling punches is, you know, you, you can't do that. Um, you know, we're in a situation where I think enough people are starting to look at this <laughs> and they're starting to see that it doesn't make any sense. There is no logical explanation as to how they're handling this. Telling people that they need to go out and vote for you more or that it's Manchin's fault or Cinema's fault, there's always going to be a scapegoat. Always. There will always be an excuse as to why you can't get anything done or anything of relevance done. Do the Democrats want to codify Roe v. Wade? Maybe, but they're not going to do it before the election. And by then, it'll be too late because they're going to get crushed. They really think that they're going to be able to campaign on codifying Roe v. Wade. Okay, our state Democrats actually think that they're running a gubernatorial race for this year. It's just hilarious to me. Like, their most likely candidate has $10 million. Ron DeSantis has well over $100 million, and I bet you he doesn't even really have to use it because that's more for the presidential campaign he's running for 24. Think about this. If he only has to use like $30 million and he's already got like a $70 million head sign. Listen, he's not going to run. He's not going to back down from Trump. I don't see it. <laughs> I don't either. And so it's funny, like, but seriously, like the Democrats in our state actually think we're having a gubernatorial race that's worth fighting. Yeah. That's how delusional they are. But you know, the amazing thing is, is that if anybody thinks that the GOP primary will, well, actually the GOP primary might be a lot different um, with, um, with DeSantis because he's a viable candidate. I know. You know, again, we're not supporters. He he ain't Ted Cruz. No. That's Um, for sure. um, No, he's not. And, And it's like, we're not supporters. I don't want that to happen. We're trying to explain to like to any Democrat that would in any position of authority who has any power to listen. You're it's not even funny and they're not even listening. Like, it's not like we want them to lose. We're trying to say you just have to be popular. But they do what people will want. lose. Oh, it's going to be ugly. They are completely corporate captured. That's really the thing. We have to figure out what the clicking is. We have to is. figure out what the clicking is. Yeah. People say they hear clicking. And I don't, did you ever hear it? No. You don't hear it. I hear it on the live stream. I don't know. You hear it right now? They are. They hear it right the now. The audience is saying they hear it. I'll have to check it out. What yeah. So, um, yeah. Comrade Johnny, here's what I would say. Uh, I do not support a socialist system. I support a hybrid system. 
combination of socialism and capitalism. He speaks for himself. I support a myriad of different things if people can have like nice lives. So like what, what I mean by that is I care about the lifestyle of the collective. Everybody to me deserves to live with dignity. Everybody deserves to have a life where they can thrive and enjoy themselves. And if that would, if that's a socialist system, then I'm not opposed. And I've also been called a communist. So like for me, honestly, I don't have a problem with there being um, capitalism. I don't, I really don't like if that, can exist and people can have live a minimum life with dignity, then that would be okay. So I'm okay with that for some industries. I don't believe that should be healthcare. I don't believe that should be corrections. I don't believe that should be education. Those should not be for profit. And I just think that there have to be certain protections, but I'm, I'm not morally opposed to socialism at all. Morally, I think it's the best. Like on paper, morally, I think that's the best. I can't think of a better thing. No, I so, think a combination, like I said, I, I support the hybrid system of countries like Japan, Germany, uh, even the UK, obviously Scandinavia, uh, you know, places that really understand that you have to have a free market system with a robust social safety net. Yeah. And as we always like to say, uh, Guy might be right. But we would be toast if we don't. And that is and actually he's true. And the truth is, if anybody, you know, if you read Marx and you understand socialism is actually post capitalism. And I think that it is the only way that we survive. And I you know, this is not to say, again, I don't mind people having money. I don't really care how rich the rich get. I care about how poor the poor are. So if we have what I would consider to be a minimum standard of living where people can work a full-time job and live a life and have vacation and have their kids get an education and all those things, I don't care if their boss is rich. Like that's not We're also a country concern. that easily is manipulated by labels, things that people will say in order to get a rise out of people. Uh, yeah, well, and I need to also distinguish um, – for people who, like I, I, I'm assuming, and I shouldn't, that the people with whom I'm communicating who ask the question about socialism is talking about an economic system where workers own the means of production and not an authoritarian state like Cuba or what people call in Venezuela, because yes, those have socialism in their economic policy, but the problem with them is that they're authoritarian in government. Correct. So I do not support authoritarianism. But if you ask me if I support the concept of socialism economically, I find it to be very moral. Raz has a question for you. Market socialism systems like it. Yeah. I, again, I. co-ops. Yeah. I, co I believe that businesses should either be. I like the idea of worker co-ops or. I like the idea of unions. I like one or the other. Like if, if obviously if a business is a worker co-op, then it doesn't need to be unionized. But I like a mix of that. I'm for anything that helps people live better lives. Yeah. And you know, like, I'm not focused on one particular thing. And a lot of people also talk about um, another form that is uh, very popular, of course, and that is uh, a combination of libertarian socialism. Yeah. Which basically means we agree on civil liberties uh, how we allocate our tax dollars, uh, but also this idea that, you know, again, it's like there's a difference between welfare and so a social safety net. A social safety net is like a trampoline where basically if you fall through the system, you bounce up off the trampoline to get back up again. That could be a means to you've lost your job and you need help. When you're in a welfare system, 
That's a system that's like quicksand. The idea is to keep you sinking down. So a perfect example of welfare in the United States, real welfare, yeah. is a company. I, I mean, I know everyone gets after Amazon, but to me, the worst company, in my opinion, is Walmart. Walmart. And the reason why Walmart is truly the worst is, you know, we unfortunately had to go into one in Cleveland. And I can assure you that the cheapest crap, the most unhealthy food, the, the, the cheapest clothes, everything, the whole system is designed to keep you in perpetual poverty. On top of that, they do not pay a living wage, anything close to a living wage. As a matter of fact, one of the first things I talk about when you are hired to, you know, become an employee of Walmart, yeah. they immediately direct you to their welfare office. So they allow you to apply for it if you need to. By the way, McDonald's does that too. You automatically, when you apply for a job at McDonald's, they'll give you the paperwork for food stamps. Yeah. I'm just saying. And like, to me, that's an abomination. The welfare is what we're giving to those businesses. Think, that's the welfare. I think it is fantastic that people are doing that. I absolutely think that there is a place for Amazon in our society, but it absolutely needs to be, uh, you know, it needs to be unionized. In my humble opinion, Walmart shouldn't even exist. It is the most worthless, useless company in the United States. And they are responsible. The Walton family is responsible for the Clintons getting to the White House. Let's remember that. So when you have the business model that was designed to ensure that small businesses throughout the entire country were destroyed because they could not compete. How could you compete? You know, and so now it's also places like Dollar Store. Like it's not just Walmart, but Walmart is egregious. Dollar Store is just another example of yeah. Walmart. Yeah, it's it's a it's a disciple. It's a byproduct of that system. I can't go into Dollar Store. They smell to me. Yeah, they smell bad to me. Well, it smells like are, stale stuff from a warehouse in China. Is what I picture. Just been sitting in a warehouse. Reyna, uh the Waltons are Arkansas. Oh, they are Arkansas. Yeah. The very, yeah. the very rich. Um, yeah, I tend to be open-minded about things because I don't know everything. So I figure that that's what you rely on people who are really experts in that. See, like that's the, that's the way this should work. But instead, people have to know everything. And if you don't know everything, you know nothing. Like, it's like, can't we just have experts in certain things dictate the policy? Like, I think teachers and, you know, should be dictating education policy, just like I think doctors should be the ones that are talking about what's in the best interest of their patients. Like, I think we should rely on experts for what they're experts in. We need, a, we need a labor movement in education because yeah. one thing that doesn't get talked about enough is that one of the worst run unions in the country is the teacher's union because Randy Weingarten runs that union like she's a dictator. Well, she is. And everybody knows that. And when I approached her about talking to Jen about being screened for the teacher's union, she said, no, I'm with Debbie. And when she says, I'm with Debbie, she's that with means Debbie. everybody else is with Debbie because she says so. And the other thing about the teacher's union, which is very it interesting. It comes from national people. That's true. And the other thing you have to remember about the teacher's union is that their, their interests are in the interests of only teachers, not the students. Nope. You need a labor movement of teachers whose interests are that of the students. That is what we need. Well, well in all fairness, uh, if we treated our teachers better, uh, then that would be the case. So I'm not saying teachers unions should exist sure, um, to protect teachers. I don't have a problem with that. I do think people mistake them for that. Their job is to protect children and it isn't. And that, and I'm not, and it has its own purpose. You teachers unions could exist 
for the right reasons. But when they don't give screenings, then it's just a political cronyist kind of bullshit. Um, yeah, I was writing a lot about that today in our little book that yeah. we're working on. Um, yeah, so endorsements are one of those things that I call them the good, the bad, and the bogus. There's three types of endorsements. Well, that's part of what we're yeah, writing and that, about. And that, to me, I think really speaks to this whole problem here. This is one, and this, again, brings the conversation full circle that, you know, Nina had a very difficult time in, in Ohio, particularly because the Teamsters and the AFL-CIO got fully behind Chantel. They were out campaigning on her behalf. And you're thinking, well, again, you can't be pro-corporate and pro-labor. They are completely juxtaposed. So when you support a candidate who is completely engulfed in corporate special interest money, they are never going to be on the side of labor, ever. In fact, they're going to work against labor. So you would think under those circumstances that maybe unions, considering the labor movement that is growing right now, might be rethinking their strategy regarding political gamesmanship, because that was really stupid on their part. Really stupid. Yeah. Um, Red Guard, I am open to all and any ideas having to do with that. Um, I find it in incredibly infuriating that right now we're seeing this authoritarian control of my reproductive freedom. But people like Jeff Bezos get to go run amok and get to just control and, and dominate the lives of people and not take care of his employees and fly a giant penis in outer space and whatever other nonsense he does. And so I am actually opposed to actually using regulation in that regard very much so. So I, I'm open to that. I think that those things at this point need to be turned into public utilities. Um, worker co-ops. Well, you could do worker co-ops, but but I mean, it, it, they need to be much more regulated. They're out of control. And, we, and the monopoly problem is huge. Conservatives overwhelmingly agree with universal broadband. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous that people think that you shouldn't have internet. The, the reality is... If you are living in rural America and you don't have universal broadband, how can you start a small business? Like, how can you do that? You how can. do you have the opportunity yeah. to do those types of things where you don't want to be working for a company? But they don't want rural America to have small businesses because that's where all the Walmarts are. That's how you become dependent on the system that is in place. That is why they work. fight so hard. Could you imagine if Nina was a congresswoman and she was having a speech where she was basically talking about the fact that rural America, red America doesn't have universal broadband because they want you to be dependent on Walmart and the dollar store and, you know, Amazon. It's all part of it. Yeah, for sure. It's all connected. There's a reason why, you know, I've driven in a lot of different places in this country and it really sucks, especially, you know, driving I-95 right outside our doors. It can take you all the way to Canada if you want to take it all the way up to Maine. And here's what I can tell you, particularly in the South, when you are on the highway in the rural parts of the South, when you come to a truck stop, when you come to a pit stop of any kind, you are not going to find small businesses. You will find Parties and McDonald's and Subway, you will find all of the major chains and they invest no money in the local communities. A small business would invest money in the local community. Yeah. And sponsor the Little League team and, and all the other things like it's just it's so clear that that's what's happening. There's just a complete takeover. Um, Noam Chomsky says corporate tyranny is the worst form of tyranny because it's more unaccountable than government. I Yes. And now what I would say is that 
um, corporate and government is completely intertwined, like the Venom symbiote on whatever that guy's name is. They are now completely one. So um, I would say that's the same thing. But yeah, the corporate the, the corporate takeover is really what we're talking about. I feel like that's the matrix. You're either in that or you're not in that. You, it's um, it's very clear to me that that's where the problem is. We have to unionize Walmart. Or yeah, at the very I mean, least, completely kneecap them. Um, you know, we probably have to. We we probably should go to one of the WalMarts here locally and see what we can do. Oh, I'm not going to a Walmart to meet with. Workers. Oh, to meet with workers. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can go meet with workers, but there, that doesn't mean anything's going to happen. They'll cut their hours. They'll cut. Their, I mean, are you kidding me? I don't want to get workers in trouble there. Well then what the hell is the point of trying to form a labor movement? Well, that has to come from within that. Yeah, well, again, speaking to somebody who might potentially rally them, it's not our job to rally them, but it is our job to encourage them. It's because our job to support somewhere. them. Yes. But but I don't, I, I, I am not going to, I'm not being like Norma Ray at Walmart when I don't work there. Yeah. So Venom bonds to Eddie Brock. Yes, that is our, that is corporations with our government. It's Venom. It's that, that's how I think about it. There, it's a symbiote. Yeah. We all support our and a leech. just because that's really what it's about. I really, we really do. Yeah. I do as much, like as much as I possibly can, like for local, like locally, I do small businesses. I really do. It's important to me. Guys, one last time while you're here, if yeah. you support our content, if you like what we have to offer, um, it is very important that we are able to, again, as we just did, we were in Cleveland. We were able to help Nina canvas for three days. We worked in the office one night. We were in the field for two consecutive days for about 15 hours combined, probably hit as close as 200 houses. We wish we could have, uh, we, we wish we knew what we were up against in terms of where the campaign stood, but to yeah. help Nina at I all. I think it's, it's three big factors. One, the special interest money against her. Two, definitely you could do a post game on the campaign and things that they didn't do. And then the third thing is- And there definitely was things they yes. didn't do. Okay, two, and then three are all the spineless cowards that didn't come out for her. The people that actually do have power and do have platforms and they just could not be like bothered and could not put themselves on the line. Yep. Loyalty only matters when it's difficult. It only matters when it's difficult. Loyalty doesn't count for birthdays and parties and anniversaries and stuff. That's not loyal. That's pleasantries. Correct. And I'm so furious. It's like you are not an advocate for our values if you are not doing everything you can to get more people in Congress to help you do those things. I'm sorry. That should now be part of your job description if you're going to call yourself remotely non-corporate. Like, I'm just, I'm so, I'm so frustrated. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash generational change. As you guys know, we support non-corporate candidates. We support community gardens. We support beach cleanups. We support composting. We support all sorts of cool things. How about homeless care packages? Yeah, which we really need to go. I have like a whole big box that I have to yes. distribute. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. And, and another thing that we're sort of in the process of like, I, what I'd like to do when we, I really thought of this when we were talking with Neil is we actually have started, um, we, we have both a state pack and a federal pack that are basically our super PACs. And, uh, I actually have had this idea of fighting fire with fire. And while we would not take corporate pack money, 
what if we do fundraising to the point where we can get not necessarily even just small dollar donations? I'm telling you, I need five minutes of one in a room with Mark Cuban. Guys, we got to set it up. We got to get Jen. I need five minutes. I got to try again to see if I can get. I I just feel like that there are people that would be that would be financial benefactors that understand the non-corporate mission. And while, yes, it would be PAC money, it would be very transparent. We don't have to do that but I'm going to do that. So our PAC will be extremely transparent. Um, we don't have to be about, about a PAC. Yeah. No, about potentially doing like a fundraiser. Yeah. Well, I mean, that would be great. And and what I want to do is I want to be able to sit here and send a thousand dollars to Neil Valia, you know, like I want to be able to do that. And, and we want to be able to exceed that individual maximum. And unfortunately that's how they play and we need to play the same way. So um, yeah, I, we have a federal PAC. Uh, right now that we're that we're starting and it's basically I'm going to make What's it big. No, it's not. A, it's we, it's 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 called generational change pack oh. and it is a federally registered pack. But right now it's not linked to anything. I haven't like set up an account because we don't have any big benefactors. But the reality is that's what we need. We need people like the Mark Cubans and Susan Sarandons, the people like uh, the Joe Sandbergs of the world to give pack money. And and understand and we need to, you know, that's what I'm thinking. You fight fire with fire with these people. So that's sort of non-corporate pack. No, a non-corporate pack, completely transparent by people that understand that this is our mission. Um, and that getting you just the bottom line is we need money. And that's what we're dealing with. You know, if there was some non-corporate, like real, you know, left-wing, progr- I'm going to say progressive, populist pack, a populist pack that represented what we're trying to do, and that money could come back and help somebody like Nina fight against the filthy corporate pack money that she's fighting against, yeah, maybe that's the thing. Maybe we need good pack money against the evil pack money. The other thing you have to remember is that, and again, I hate to say this, it's not that we are the arbiters of truth you know, and that we have every answer. But one thing that I think you guys know for sure is that <clears throat> if we are overseeing the money, it's going to go where it belongs. It's going to go where it belongs. But and, and, the, and the thing about the super PACs is that what's so scary about that it's dark money because they don't have to. They don't There's have no to. Accountability. Right. They don't have to be accountable for their money. They don't have to file it. It can be just whatever it wants. I would voluntarily, all of our money will be 100% transparent and accountable um, because I don't have a problem with that. We just need money. It doesn't need to be dark money. It's not going to be nefarious money. I'm not taking fossil fuel money or, or, or big pharma money. No, this is money from individuals who believe in exactly Correct. what we're fighting that can for. Get, so that we can give more than the minimum. Corporate the max. candidates. Right. No such so like if good. somebody like Mark Cuban wanted to give me a million dollars so that we can get non-corporate candidates and distribute that money around the country to fight in these races, then yeah, yeah, I think I, I, I think I can get behind that. Um, and so I, I do think that, that it's just something I'm, I'm tossing around. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And that, of course, is, you know, when it comes to raising money, I, I think there can be good pack money. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I, again, I understand. And of course, there are good PACs that are out there. Um, and But unfortunately, most of them are not good. And most of them are funded because they create jobs for people and they're on boards and they're making $100,000 right. a year. That is not what we're doing no, this for. We're no, doing this because no. these candidates need help. Yeah. And they don't have money. And they can't, they're not, look, as much as we love grassroots and small dollar donations and as much as that's that should be the basis of your campaign, 
the reality is that we need more money. If we had the ability to raise twenty-five dollars to $50,000 for India Walton for her next campaign, exactly. you better believe we're going to do it. And that's so what, that's, that's, what we're talking about. that's an example of how you can make that difference. And we would have the ability to make that difference. And we will give you guys the opportunity to share your sentiments in regards to which candidates are worth supporting. We're also going to be very strategic about which candidates are involved. I actually think that it really means uh, vegan cat lover. I challenge that and I reject that. And I think it is completely possible, just like I think that if I could get somebody to fund doing an independent news network, that they actually really did believe in it. And you created it so that it was like a co-op, that they provided seed money and they got something in return for it. But it was created as a co-op. I do believe that's possible. And I and I do think that you can find people with money, people like Joe Sandberg, who probably could get behind something like that. Yeah. So I, I I reject that. And I think that I know me and I know how I was running. What's something. the line that Nina said? Yeah. Being progressive doesn't mean you have to take a vow of poverty. But what 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 vegan cat lover is saying is that taking billionaire money defeats the entire purpose of being progressive. No, it just means we're taking their money. And it's all that it means. It doesn't mean I'm doing anything other than taking the money to further what we're trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm starting to. to get, let me, after watching this thing with Nina, it's like, yeah, I'm, I feel like it's, it, they want to get in the, they, they want, wanna, you want to fight fire. You got to fight it back. Yes. That's the only way it's going to work. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, you know, look, if, if people like, like what we're doing and they want to get behind what we're doing, that's how a movement works. And also, you- oh, I'm sorry. Just, I'm going to train a thought when we had, um, when we were being trolled at one point and someone was talking to me about, um, well, if you're doing it that way, you're not going to pull people to the left. I don't need to pull people to the left. We just need to work with people that are on the right sometimes Again, to get it, things done. Is this money that is going towards corporate special interests or Correct. is it going towards non-corporate interests? This is a non-corporate interest pack. If you are going to give money to a non-corporate interest pack, you know. that means non-corporate money is what will be coming into it. Right. If somebody ultimately decides that they want to give X amount of it's dollars. A grassroots pack. Correct. It's there a is grassroots a, pack. If you think we're not trustworthy, then get the hell out of politics. Right. Like, uh, yeah, at this point, and and yeah, and and it will be fully transparent. So, guys, yeah, it's it's a, that's what I'm gonna do. It's like a gra- it's a grassroots pack to give like, you know, the, those corporate people are starting on third base, guys. That's the way it is. If and you, we need and, to and if up. and if this is and if this is what you believe. Thank you for stopping by. You can turn you can turn the channel. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Go ahead and turn the channel. It's fine. I I and what we've done in our projects and what we've supported and what we've been fighting for and what we've done locally speaks for itself. So I don't I I I know where our money goes and our I suppose I suppose Nina Turner's a corporate hack because she took fifty thousand from Wolfpack, uh Jay Uger's organization. Does that make her a corporate whore? I mean, there 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 can be we need to it's this is the reality we live in, people. You know, it, it really is. And, and we need to we need to combine our resources. And if there are some wealthy people that are willing to toss in a little bit extra, that's kind of how the taxation system should work. So I don't mind them paying their fair share to help us get progressives and populists and non-corporate people elected. I'm good with that. Yeah. Like if somebody wanted to give us money and then I could help fight back. When when Kashama Sawant seat is up and Bezos is throwing three million dollars at her, and we can get somebody to throw some money behind her, yeah, I'm good with that. I I'll, I'll sleep just fine at night. So you can call me whatever you want to call me. So unfortunately, the battle is going to be fought. It's not going to be easy, but 
I think without question, there is a way to do this um, in a non-corporate fashion. If people have money and they want to contribute, you know, again, it's like saying that, you know, and, and the problem with this particular person, vegan cat lover, is this idea, as you said, as Nina Turner says, uh, you don't have to take a vow of poverty. Right. There is no point in thinking that you can make things work by simply not having any money at all. You don't have to take dirty money. That is not what we're doing. That is not what the pack is going to do. There is going to be certain bylaws, guidelines in terms of what money is accepted. Corporate special interest money cannot be accepted. An individual can donate whatever they want to donate. Thank you, dirtbag leftist. I think it is too. And I, I, you know, I haven't seen this really be tried. I don't know much about Jenks Pack. Like, I don't know what their their mission no, is, either. but ours would be basically to for to give non-corporate and grassroots people um, an, a help to fight against the corporate people. That's the whole purpose of Correct. what it would basically be. And there are a lot of people out there who frankly want to donate to these types of things. They just they don't just, know. Who they don't know who to give it to. They don't know who to trust. And frankly, they want to do it conspicuously. They don't want their names out there because there's also a lot of things that can happen um, when uh you know, when when this type of thing happens, um, you know, you have to remember people want to donate, but they also want to make sure that they are not going to be um, that they're not going to be expo well exposed is not even the right word. It's 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 basically suggesting that if somebody who is involved in some type of a it could be somebody who's a big actor in Hollywood, for example. Right. And they have to swim in those neoliberal waters, but they truly are non-corporate and they believe in what we're doing. They can't put their name out there in you, support of, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's such a Mallory thing to say. <laughs> well, yeah, Mal is, Mal's good people. And so, I, and I, so I really do think that people need to realize that there are a lot of people in certain you know, again, people look at the the money that was donated to Bernie from, I think, um, investment banks. What people don't realize is that those are individuals working in investment banks because they actually do believe in Bernie's mission. They know that the system is rigged. They know how much they hurt people. And if they can bring some semblance of honesty yeah. and integrity to the system, that's what you do. This is how you do it. Now, if somebody from, I don't know, uh, Walmart offers us a million dollars, we're not taking it. <laughs> So let's no, be nobody's buying us to do anything we wouldn't want to do. I'm talking about having a meeting of the minds of people that are on our same mission and people that have resources. So let's be very clear about <laughs> what this is. So with that said, think about know, all the people we would be able to give money to and help. Yeah. People like Erica Smith, people like, like that yeah. would basically be the whole point. We could be like a clearinghouse and not only just, and as a pack, actually, you don't send money to the campaigns. You basically are running another campaign. You're running like a shadow campaign to their campaign. So we would have the resources to hire campaigns canvassers and put out ads and do all these things on behalf of them. And it actually is separate from their campaign. Correct. And, and you can do whatever you want. So we could be sending out flyers all around North Carolina's first district telling, singing the praises of Erica Smith. Speaking of Erica Smith, she will be on our show on Monday. We really appreciate you guys. We have gone way over time, but this was a very important conversation to be had. We support Nina Turner 100% and we support codifying Roe v. Wade, 100%. Unfortunately, the Democratic establishment doesn't feel the same. Doesn't support either of those things. Neither way. 
And so with that said, not all blues are created equal. Yeah. And so with that, we will see you Monday. Good night, guys. Bye, all. Thanks for watching. If you want to support our mission to transform politics into service, please like this video, subscribe, follow us on social media, and consider joining our Patreon, where you'll get early access to our interviews as well as other exclusive content. Links are in the description. Peace out.